Hashem Naseh Benatzliach, Shul Torah. Good to be back in Aventura, Baruch Hashem. The um, world continues to get crazier and crazier. There was a uh, another shooting today, unfortunately. More people died in California. Uh, the uh, last, I only saw one report, said that... Uh, it ended up in a uh, elementary school, which uh, whether you're a Jew or a non-Jew, religious or non-religious, it seems like everywhere is becoming more and more dangerous. And unfortunately, the uh, the prediction of what's going to happen at the end of times and how things are going to um, become insane, in so many words, uh, is... We're seeing it in front of our eyes. Anyone that's still in denial about where we stand with the world, where we stand in the eyes of Hashem, uh, Bezat Hashem will uh, learn a little bit about that today because it seems like most people are still fooled by this world, still convinced that you're supposed to come here and be on vacation for 70 or 80 years. And uh, as even though it's not necessarily uh, an obligation to suffer, uh, no one says that you're supposed to suffer all the time. Uh, it seems like everyone's suffering. It seems like there's not a person that I met in my life that hasn't gone through some type of some form of suffering at some point or another, um, where people are suffering different things. I mean, I uh, just uh, I mean, every week, every week there's new news. Every week, the Baruch Hashem, we meet new people. And uh, unfortunately, many of them have uh, suffering stories, either it's because of uh, marriage issues, children issues, uh, death in the family, diseases, money losses, business deals going bad, all types of things, usually the things that make people become more religious or even more interested in religion altogether, uh, are, are suffering. So it's almost like a calling card for Hashem. Uh, and that's also why you'll see why, generally speaking, the most religious people in the world throughout history have always been poor. In the Gemara, Masechet Abodazara, the uh, Hashem says, there's not a better trait that I've found in my people than when they're poor. Meaning that we're closest to Hashem when we're poor. But Hashem wants to reward us, Hashem wants to reward us, Hashem wants us to, to, to do good, to feel good. Unfortunately, we don't really know how to use it. And that's why there's a couple of places in the Torah, in the uh, book of Deuteronomy, in uh, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs, a few other places where Hashem reminds us constantly not to forget Him once He gives us parnasah, once He gives us money. So, for better or for worse, suffering is applicable to everyone. The rich, the poor, the uh, tall, short, male, female, Jew, non-Jew, everyone suffers in their life to such an extent that anyone that really thinks about it, I really thought about it a few times in my life, if you really think about it, life in general, even if you put the Torah aside for a moment, I mean, obviously you get a lot more clarity with the Torah, but just using your rational brain, life in general is moments of happiness, moments of happiness surrounded by months of suffering. That's life in general. I'm not trying to depress you guys, but that's just a reality. 
In reality, let's say if you have a year, you have a year, and you're going into the work world, you're going to be, I don't know, a real estate broker or you're going to sell some type of technology or whatever you're going to do for a living. In general, your entire year is aiming for a single goal. One, two, or three goals that you have for the year. One goal is maybe to have a vacation for a week. Another goal is maybe to get a deal closed so you can get a raise. And a third goal is, I don't know, maybe a different position of some kind or some other type of target that you have. So the entire year you want to sacrifice your life, your family, your time, your happiness, your everything, just to achieve these three moments of short-term happiness. So you, the whole year you're saving extra money, you're even eating less, just so you can go on vacation for a week. And that's what people do. People save the whole year so they can go on vacation for a week. The whole year you're going to spend less time with your family so you can get this deal done. So you work overtime so you can get this deal done because the contract's a big contract and the customer is a big customer, but a big customer is always a demanding customer. And... They need extra time, and you want to get it done this year, and you're afraid that if you don't do, if you don't work 900 hours a day, you're not going to get it this year. So you lose your family, you lose the friends, you lose your sanity to get this one contract for the moment of happiness you're going to get. When you finally finish the contract, you get the contract, you get the deal done, but then you have to start all over again. Then the rat race starts all over again. Same thing after the vacation. Sometimes you become successful. Hashem blesses you with success, but that success becomes a curse. And the reason why is because when you're successful, that means you're able to get those short-term happy moments very often. And they start losing their meaning. You used to go on vacation once a year. Now you go on a vacation once a month. And sometimes you can get to a point where you already start suffering while you're on vacation. Because you know that the vacation is going to be over in a few hours or a few days, and you're going to have to wait a whole month before the next vacation. So, suffering, for better or for worse, is something that really is the vast majority of our life. Obviously, the suffering that I'm talking about right now is just general day-to-day. The bigger suffering, of course, that all of us deal with, Shem Elchem, Death in the family, diseases, pain, sickness, stress. Who doesn't have stress? So what's the tachlis? What's the point? Why am I mentioning? Why am I trying to depress all of you? Go, you know, go to psychiatrist at the end of the class to get you out of the uh, out of the Torah. Why? The thing is that since we all suffer, it's time we ask: Does it have a purpose? Is there a point? of this suffering. We're all going to suffer anyway. We're not talking about genome and that type of stuff. No, we're just, just this life here. What's the point? Why did Hashem create suffering? Why can't He just make us all go on to, you know, vacation all the time? Why can't we all be happy all the time? Why can't we, by default, be happy? Wake up with a smile ear to ear. We have to get a surgery to fix the smile and make it normal. Why? Why are we always so stressed out that we're not going to have this and we're not going to have that? Why do we have so much suffering? Why is it every time I reach my pocket to get a dollar or ten dollars or a hundred dollars, three pennies come out? Where did the hundred dollar bill go? 
How come? Is there a point to the suffering? So the question is, what we're going to do with the Mishnah is we're going to try, Bezat Hashem, to answer the question of, is there a purpose to suffering? Because it's a significant question that if you understand that suffering has a purpose, then suffering changes. It changes its meaning. It changes its, you know, its application in your life. But if suffering is purposeless, meaning there's no point, Hashem just wants to beat you up, then you have to question whether you want to continue doing what you're doing. If you're going to suffer anyway. It's a very significant question in life. But most people don't have the time to even think about the question, let alone think about the fact that they need to answer the question because most of their life they're, they're actually doing it. They're experiencing suffering. So we'll answer some of that, Bezot Hashem. And as you can see in the world today, there's all these people that are suffering above and beyond with these sending their kids to school and getting that horrible phone call. Some crazy guy showed up and started shooting people. Who could even think of such a thing? In your wildest nightmares, you couldn't think of such a thing. Your wildest nightmares, you wouldn't think that this is a phone call that someone you know is going to get. Sent a little kid, little boy to school. You get the phone call. Yeah, the boy was in school. Yeah, I went to school. He's still in school. Not so much. Who can think such a thing? But now, you see that many of the tzaddikim, the righteous people of Am Yisrael, had an exorbitant amount of suffering. Much worse. Much worse than anyone could even imagine. And one of them we'll talk about a little bit today is the Yavitz. Yavitz, you gave me the book uh, last week. Uh, uh, Rabbi Yaakov Emden from Emden. He was the son of Chacham Tzvi. He was one of the Gedolei Ador a couple of hundred years ago, about 250 years ago. And uh, he was during the era of the war against Shabtai Tzvi. A big giant chacham. I mean, the amount of work that he published, the amount of work that he has out there. I mean, it's it's just it's not it doesn't make him just a gdolador of that generation, but literally one of the biggest chachamim that ever lived. And he was full of controversy. He actually even went to war with some of the biggest rabbis in the world at the time that were also righteous. It wasn't like today where. Unfortunately, you don't know who's righteous and who's, who's, who, who is and who's not. Back then, uh, you was, it was clear certain people were uh, like Rabbi Yonatan Ibishitz, the one that I tell you guys that he is the one that gave the best definition, or at least the one that I heard of, the best definition of Sinat Chinam. Most people think that Sinat Chinam, you know, baseless hatred, is when one Ashkenazi doesn't like a Sephardi, or one Sephardi doesn't like Ashkenazi, or the whites don't like the blacks, or the blacks don't like the whites, or the Yemenites don't like anyone. People think that it's not liking people just because. But Rabbi Yonatan Ibishitz actually defined it quite differently, more in line with Da'at Torah. And he says that the biggest Sinat Chinam, the biggest baseless hatred, biggest reason of why we don't have Bet HaMikdash today is because when one Jew sees another Jew making a sin and doesn't do anything about it, that's Sinat Chinam. 
Why? Because if you see another Jew making a sin, you know that Hashem is going to punish him for it. Now, if it's a really big sin, like Chilul Shabbat, eating taref, you know, intermarriage, and so on and so forth, in essence, you're seeing your brother or your sister on the train tracks while the train is going 150 miles an hour with only one way to go, and that's to hit him or her. And you're not going to tell him to move. You're not going to say anything. No, no, a lot of mine is own business. I don't know him that well. What do you mean? But he's going to get hit by a truck. Does it matter if you know him that well if he's going to get hit by a train? No, I don't want to bother him. Do you think he's going to really care that you bothered him after you save his life? Right now, maybe he doesn't realize you're saving his life. Once you get him out of the tumah that he's in, he's going to be excited that you're even acknowledging him. So Rabbi Yonah says, the reason why we still, 2,000 years later, don't have the Bet HaMikdash is because the same Sinat Chinam we had 2,000 years ago, we still have today. People are scared to rebuke one another with the purpose of obviously helping people do tshuva, not just to yell at people for no reason. So obviously, the work and the Torah that Rabbi Yonatan learned and taught was extraordinarily holy, but unfortunately, uh, the Yavitz suspected that he was also a very deep follower of Shabtai Tzvi, the false Mashiach at the time. He suspected many people of being uh, followers of Shabtai Tzvi. And unfortunately, it was not uh, such an easy test to pass. A lot of people think that it was such an easy test to pass. Listen, he's a false Mashiach, just kill him, and that's it. What's the problem? Why is any, why is any big Chacham following this guy? It was because these false Mashiachs weren't like today's false Mashiach, where every day I get an email if somebody thinks he's a Mashiach. Every day I get an email, somebody tells me he's the Mashiach. The last three or four days, I have this one guy, He's convinced, convinced he's going to change the world. He's writing me emails. They're so long, I don't even read them. I just read the first line. I realize how crazy the guy is. But honestly, they're so long. Just to scroll, to scroll to see the length of email or message that he sends me on Facebook takes 25 seconds. I say, if, if he spent half the time learning instead of writing, of what he's doing writing, maybe it'd actually be something in his life. But he's convinced he's the Mashiach. He's convinced he's going to save the world. He's convinced of all these different things that he has. Every week I get somebody that thinks he's a Mashiach. This one, yeah, I'm related to King David. Really? Wow, Hashem. That's amazing. Okay, let's go. Come on, no wars in the world. Make everybody healthy. Make everybody... No? What happened? No, no, I need, I need some money. What are you, you're a broke Mashiach? You're a broke Mashiach. Get a job first, then you can be a Mashiach again. Get a job first. Go make a few billion. You know, go, go invest in Bitcoin. Go invest in the stock market, make a few bucks, and be Mashiach. No, no, I was hoping maybe you could raise money for me so I could save the nation. Fund me. Do a, do a, uh, do a fundraising for me. Every week I get a different crazy person, at least one. At least once a week I get a crazy person telling me he's the Mashiach. So today's Mashiach is a bunch of idiots. People that are just sick, bored, in the middle of nowhere, and uh, they're convinced, convinced. Many of them are not even Jewish. That's the best part. That's the best part. Many of them are not even Jewish. Convinced they are the Mashiach. They want to be the Mashiach. One guy says, listen, I don't know if I am the Mashiach. I just think I should be. (laughs) And he made a whole video for me. He made a whole video for me telling me, I don't know if I'm the Mashiach. I don't really know. But I think I would do a good job. And he gives the whole description of why he thinks he could do a good job. This little Asian guy. 
You know, he's like cute. He's like, you know, like oh, three feet tall. And he's like convinced that he should be the Mashiach because he thinks he would do a good job. So it's crazy people with plenty of, plenty of, plenty, plenty. Like it says in the Torah, when the uh, king of the Philistines, they, uh, the, uh, one day they caught David Melech. They caught David Melech. He was roaming around. And uh, they caught him. So they, uh, David Melech, didn't know, how can I get out of this? They, if they realize I'm David Melech, they're going to kill me. So David Melech had mamash, siyatid ishmaya, and he said, oh, Hashem, he realized that Hashem put him in this situation specifically to answer a question that he had for Hashem. What was the question? He answered, he asked Hashem, Hashem, why'd you make drunk people? Why'd you make drunk people? For what? Why'd you make spiders? Why'd you make, uh, you know, a, uh, mosquitoes? For what? What purpose do these things serve? So then in that moment, he realized, I have to play like I'm drunk. So he started playing like he's drunk. And the king of the Philistines looked at this guy, looks like he's a drunk. And he says, what are you bringing me more crazy people? Don't I already have enough in my house? Why? Because his wife and his daughter both went crazy. Both his wife and his daughter went crazy. He says, why are you bringing me more crazy people? I don't have enough crazy people in my house. Who is this? This is not King David. This is some crazy homeless guy wearing his outfit. So I, you know, so I, I see all these people every week. I have new crazy people. I said, don't I already have enough crazy people? So everybody thinks they're the Mashiach. Everybody thinks they're the Mashiach. Sometimes the rabbis think they're the Mashiach. Like the guy who said that God spoke to him and said, thank you. I don't know. I, I'm a mash. I, it's like a disease for me. I can't. I can't. I can't. If I hear it, if I hear him for thirty seconds, it affects me for a week. It's like a virus. Mamash is like a virus. I have stomach aches. I have headaches. I start bleeding from my eyes. Money. Well, Satan has a lot of money. What money? Money. Think I care about money? It's just the guy. The guy is gonna invent a new. I'm telling you. I already predicted this two years ago. No prophecy. No nothing. No prophecy, no nothing. Don't say I'm a prophet. I'm just telling you, based on experience, this guy is, I say, over under 12 months away from inventing a new religion. Like outright new religion. Like right now, he's still pretending it's Judaism. 12 months, new religion altogether. He's the Mashiach, he's this, he's that. 12 months. 12 months, give or take six months. Give or take. He's definitely inventing a new religion. This guy is Kofir Gamur Ama'aretz Rasha. Whatever, but people still love, love, love to listen to him. Why? Because he tells everybody's okay. Everybody's okay. Yeah. The other day, last thing I heard, and I wanted to vomit, is he uh, says, uh, "You have to educate your kids the way they want to be educated. If your kid is angry, then teach him when he's angry. If your kid is a bad kid, teach him like whatever your kid wants to do, let him do it." Okay, just throw him in the zoo. Go in the zoo with them. You, the lion, the monkey, and your kid. That's the same thing. What do you mean? If the kid's angry, let him be angry. Got to teach the kid me dot. What do we have the Torah for? Teach the kid the way they want to be taught. This, this is what he's teaching people. And people, yeah, yeah, chazaku baruch. Wow, your pays look extra long this week. Because people are stupid. People are stupid. People are stupid. The vast majority of the public is stupid. Yes, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not afraid to say it. It's a, it's a sad reality. The vast majority of people are either foolish or they're looking for excuses. That's just a reality. 
Why? Ivelet Adam tesalef darko ve'al Adonai izaf libo. The stupidity of man, the stupidity of man leads him to sin against Hashem. And then he gets mad at Hashem for punishing him. This is in the Torah. Because I'm not saying it, I'm not, hey, this guy thinks he's extra smart. No, it's in the Torah, it says. It's in the Torah, it says the people are stupid. Am naval velo chacham. Am naval. What's am naval? Despicable people, stupid people. What did you go against? You went against Hashem, the hand that feeds you? You know how many times when it's in the Torah that we're stupid? Not stupid like our intellect, our IQ is like a monkey. But stupid like we're making foolish mistakes, careless mistakes for no reason. Reason why is because it's we have kaludat. We have a very free mind. We're looking for the easy way out. We're looking for just a... Uh, we don't want to work too hard. We want to be on vacation our whole life. So now... Going back to our story, we have the Yavitz was a Kodesh Kodeshim a couple of hundred years ago. And uh, he actually is the first one that uh, I read up a little bit about it. It says he was the first one and there was one other rabbi after him that actually wrote his own bio, meaning his own autobiography. Usually rabbis, somebody else, after they die, somebody else would write about them. Or if they're later in their years, somebody would write in their, in their you know, last few years before they die. So usually if there's a mistake, they would ask the rabbi. Or if there's a mistake or an exaggeration, it's, ah, it's because you love the rabbi, you're exaggerating. Like so a lot of people like to exaggerate a lot of, about big rabbis. Oh yeah, this rabbi promised that if you go to Uman, you don't have to do anything ever again. Well, no, you never said that. No, you never said anything like that. Rabbi Nachman Bresham never said you don't have to do anything. He never says he's going to save you from gain. No, if you just went to Uman. He says, if you follow the entire Shulchan Aruch, the entire Shulchan Aruch, meaning you're already a tzaddik, you made a few little sins, then he'll pray for you in Shemaim if you give him extra attention, you study his Torah. That's what he said. But to say, if I go to Uman and I break dance with a bunch of crazy people, that's going to save me from gain. No, he didn't say that. All people say, oh no, the uh, Lubavitcher Rebbe, if you go to the oil, everything's going to be okay. No, he never said that. He never said those things. People make up things that people say all the time. So, the Yavitz actually made sure to say it himself. It's life. Now, you read this book, within five minutes, five minutes, you start questioning whether it's Job or it's Yavitz. Honestly, the little bit that I know, I think his life was worse than Job. And I'm going to give you some things of what I... Mamash, like, it's horrible, horrible life. He says himself, my entire life, he lived almost 80 years, my entire life, I never had one day, one moment, one moment of peace, one moment of happiness. You would think this is somebody that's like a clinical depression maybe... This is a guy that's like, you know, doesn't have God in his life. You think whoever's writing this is somebody that's definitely not a gdola dole. He says, one moment in my life I didn't have peace. One moment in my life I didn't have happiness. So you're thinking, what kind of, why this guy is, who, why, what happened? You start reading about his life. Hashem Rachem. Hashem I'm going to give you guys a few notes of what happened to this guy's life. Honestly, after I, after I heard a little bit about it, I don't think anyone, any one of us has a right to complain ever again about anything. 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 Ever. Ever, ever. Mamash, it made me feel bad about myself. 
I, I'm actually thinking about deleting my lecture about my personal life story, <laughs> complaining for two hours. Shemirachem, what he experienced, just to give you an idea. When he was seven years old, he already knew the uh, one Masechet by heart. One Masechet, Masechet Beitzah by heart. If we're 70 years old and we know it by heart, we're doing great. He was seven. He knew it by heart. A few months later, he went blind. Lost vision. He prayed, whatever, he got his vision back eventually. Then, one day he has an abscess. Where? On his brit. He has an abscess on his brit. Now, I have a little experience with abscesses, a little bit, a little bit of experience with abscesses. When I have one abscess, one abscess, my whole body hurts. One abscess, I have my whole body hurts. Like it's awful, horrendous thing, but pretty much you have, in essence, a pocket created in your, in your body that continues to consume more and more blood and infection in it, and it continues growing. It continues growing, but it's not like cancer that may take three months or six months or a year or five years to grow. This thing grows from nothing to like a, like a cyclops in like 24 hours. Like one day you're like, ah, oh, ha, ha, yeah, you little, 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 you know, little smurf. The next day you're like, ah, you can't move, you're in pain, you don't know what happened. You have a golf ball sticking out of you. Have no, you have no idea what happened. It's one, one abscess. He said he had an abscess on his bridge. Just thinking about this made me sick. Mamash, thinking about it made me sick. Made me sick. Days later, the entire area became full of abscesses. Not one abscess. The entire area became full of abscesses. Days later, almost his entire body became full of abscesses. I would have. I want to jump off the bill just thinking of, of what he has in a story. When did he live? This is about 250 years ago. By miracle, they thought he was all going to die. They all thought he was going to die. He said by pure miracle, one day, everything went away. One day, everything just disappeared. Then... His, uh, when he was uh, 17, his father, his mother, and his sister all died in the same year. His father, his mother, and his sister all died in the same year. He's 17. Now he has to be the father for his younger brothers now. He's the father now. He has to go get panasai, he has to go survive. He gets married, finds a kala. You would think, oh, the father-in-law is going to support him. He's going to help him out a little bit. At the very least, at the very least, he's not going to get in the way. At the very least. The father-in-law, Shem of the first wife, not only doesn't help, but he even stole the wedding money. They were, they got money in the wedding, they stole the money. One guy gave the, uh, the Yavit some money in his hand. He gave him some money in his hand for present. And the father-in-law had the chutzpah. Hey, give me that too. Give me the money too. It's mine. Mamas Lavan. Mamas Lavan. Chazak Mamas Lavan. 
And he didn't want to give it. Yabed says, I didn't give it to him. I didn't give it to him. What happened? His new wife started getting into an argument with him. No, you should give it to my father. So now from that moment on, from day one, he had problems with his wife. In his life, six of his kids died. In his life, six of his kids. You know, the Gemara says, the worst possible punishment a person can get in this world is seeing one of their children die before them. Six. Six died. Six died. He says one day, I felt pain in my stomach, but I said, oh, it's going to go away. It's going to go away. Go away. But little by little, I started feeling like someone was actually stabbing me inside my stomach, like ripping my stomach up. He says, one day I went to the bathroom. I went to the bathroom. Back then it was different than today. And all of a sudden, a worm comes out from that area, two meters long, six feet. Six feet long comes out of his body. Six feet long, Hashem Rachem. This point of the story, I wanted to vomit, by the way, when I first heard this. Six feet long, worm comes out of his body. Diseases. Different uh, worms, they can grow. If you don't take care of things, they can grow significantly. He's only 17 right now, guys. The amount of pain that he had in his life, he says there was never a day without pain. He had the uh, helpers, every helper he ever had, somehow went against him. Start, start to sound familiar. Every helper he had went against him. One book he wrote, it was 80% of the way there, 80% finished. The helper decides, nah, he doesn't want to do it anymore. Work is gone. Imagine, you put your whole life into a work. You're almost done. The helper decides, nah, See ya. See you later. See you later. You meant, this is not like uh, you are uh, playing a video game and the game turned off after an hour of playing. You're putting your life into a piece of work and it just, if it's 80% there, 90% there, 70% there, it's the same thing as 0%. It's all gone. Then his first wife dies. Marries another. First, second one dies also. Second wife dies also. Never had shalom bayit with any of them. Third wife married a third time. Everywhere he went, he had to keep moving from place to place because everywhere he went, people would chase him because he was a mochiach. He told people the truth. And he fought against the whole Shabtai Tzvi, uh, uh, false Mashiach stuff. So he kept having to move from place to place. Every time he would, he made a little bit of money, somebody stole everything. One day he has money, next day he's broke, homeless, no food to eat. Again, had to restart all over. Restart all over, made a little bit of money, finally got on his feet again, the whole house burned up. With the money, with everything. Build it up again. Somebody stole it again. Mama, it's like, it's like a nightmare after a night. If you have one of these stories in your life, you should write a book. One story. 
one of these stories, you should write a book because it would be a bestseller. This all happened to him. And this is not even half of it. He actually says in the book, I'm not even telling you, this is 250 pages, I'm not even telling you everything that happened because if I tell you everything that happened to me in my life, all the disasters that happened in my life, the world would end and the problems wouldn't. The world would end, but the amount of problems that I had in my life would not end. Does anyone here actually have the audacity to complain about anything in their life? What a life. You hear about this, you, say, it's, it's a, you think you're looking in the mirror, it's a Baruch Hashem, everything is perfect. And by the way, the whole book he's saying, Baruch Hashem, this happened to me. Baruch Hashem, this happened to me. This happened to me. He's praising Hashem that all of this happened to him. He's not complaining. He's not crying like I'm crying to you guys right now. He's praising Hashem. Baruch Hashem, I lost my money. And Baruch Hashem, I had a worm six feet, six feet long come out of my body. A snake came out of his body saying, Baruch Hashem. A snake came out. An anaconda came out of his body saying, Baruch Hashem. Because he's saying that there's a significant value to suffering. Significant value. Where if we only knew the value of our suffering, we would actually pray to Hashem to get some. So we'll get there. So now, this week's parasha, parasha Toldot, we are introduced to more details about Yitzhak Avinu. Last week, we find out that Sarai Menu dies and uh, Avram gets uh, remarried to another woman named Keturah. But Keturah is actually Hagar. It's the same woman. Hagar, the first, the first, uh, the first Pilegish that he had, that uh, was uh, Paro's daughter. She left, and then she came back. And he remarried her again. He had more kids with her. The mother of Ishmael. And he had more kids with her. But this time here, the Torah calls her Keturah. In chapter 25, verse 1. Avram proceeded and took a wife whose name is Keturah. But Rashi says that Keturah is really a girl. It's not a different woman. It's the same woman. The same woman. He remarried the same woman. So the question is, why is Keturah even, why is this name even mentioned? Why is there a different name? Why can't you just call her Agar? So in the Gemara, Masechet Rosh Shana, page 16, and also in the Rambam, Ilchot Tshuva, it says that one of the things that a person can do, in many cases should do, when they do full tshuva, is change their name. And the reason why is, in essence, not to have any connection to your previous self, uh, sinful self. If someone was a very big sinner of some kind or another, you don't want any connection to that past. You want to show Hashem, I'm a completely different person. This is not necessarily a halacha where you have to do it, but this is something that some people did 
especially in the past. Today, people just have a flat tire. They add three, four, five names to their name. Oh, yeah, yeah, I saw. I went to a lecture. Okay, what happened in the lecture? I got another name. Why did you get another name? The rabbi said that his Kabbalah said that I should get another name. So, why? Do you realize the significance of getting another name? Do you know that if you get another name, you actually have to use that name all the time? You can't just have another name. People ask me all the time, oh, yeah, I'm having a daughter. I'm having a son. I want to call him, uh, you know, two, three names. You know, I want to call him uh, David, Elchanan, Shmuel, Shmuelovitz. Because after my father, my, uh, you know, father-in-law, my uncle that died, my grandfather, the rabbi, I don't want to insult everyone, so I want to call him after everyone. But in reality, I'm really going to call him David. Is that okay? No, it's not okay. It's not okay. Why? If you call your son or daughter multiple names, you always have to call them by that name. Meaning, if they have two names, three names, let's say if it's uh, uh, David Shmuel, you have to call the kid, David Shmuel, come here, honey. You can't say David. You have to say David Shmuel. If you want to call your daughter Sarah Imenu, you have to call her Sarah Imenu all the time. You can't just say, oh, Sarah, Sarah, come over here. No, no, you have to use the whole name. You can't shorten a name. It's actually a bad thing. It's a, uh, the Zohar Kadosh says, when you actually shorten a person's name, you're shortening their life. That's also why you should never give anyone short names. You should never call any of your kids like Ron or Don or any of those short names. People think there actually is a significance in names, but the key is to know what not to do. What to do is not so hard. Just pick one of the biblical names, you're finished. What not to do is more difficult. Why? Because you have a lot of shtuyot in the world, a lot of nonsense being taught to people today in the world. Every other day you have three, four, five names. And the best thing is when I, you know, people want to join the group, so they send me an email. So I always ask, what's your name? I mean, I have a lot of contacts. I need to know how to identify you. You know, people always say, hey, hi, how are you? I hate those emails. Don't ask me how I am. You don't really care how I am, first of all. And second of all, what do you want? Just tell me what you want. Let's get to the point. The first line of how are you is not really relevant. Tell me what you want. But the best thing is they want to they really want to test my, my, uh, my patience is they just send me how are you. No, nothing else. Just how are you. That's it. Or hi. They send me a text message. Hi. Like we're friends from like high school. Hi. Hi. Where are we going with this? We're going to become friends? What are we doing? We're going to go hang out? We're going to have a couple of beers? What? What? Where are we going? Oh, I'm from, uh, you know, uh, Bangladesh. So why are you telling me hi? Oh, I was wondering, and then you got a whole Megillah, five hours long of things. But I just wanted to know that I answered. Don't say hi. Just say what you want. Let's go. I don't have that kind of time. So I usually just don't answer. Somebody says to me hi, I don't answer at all. And they think I could say, uh, it's personal. It's not. It's just that there's no, I'm not looking for friends. I'm looking to help you. I'd be happy to help you. But if you're looking for a friend, get a dog. So anyway, the uh, people ask me all the time about names, and they say that they want to call their kids these multiple names, and it's a very big mistake because you're going to have to use those names their entire life. And it's, not as, it's much easier to call your kid two or three names than to actually say it. You know, so if, you have, if your kid has two, three names, it's difficult. So sometimes you see, like for example, converts, they pick a new name, but they like multiple names. They like Sarah, they like Isabel, they like, uh, I don't know, Hadassah, they like uh, Rivka, they like Rachel, they like all the names. Like, oh, they have, all of a sudden you get an email, just the, uh, just the, t- the title of who this person is takes me five minutes to read. 
Hadassah, Michael, Rivka, Yaakov, Avraham, Yitzhak. I feel like I'm reading it in Tanakh. Just a name. Enough. Pick one name. It's No, it's one person. I'm telling you, three, four, five names, one person. Three, four, five names, one person. Just that takes me 25, 30 seconds to read. And then three minutes to think about. Why are they calling themselves so many names? Is this, I thought like you. I'm like, maybe it's like five people. They have a joint email account. Maybe it's like five people that have a joint email account. And they're sending me an email together. Like it's a representation of like a union. It's like a UN. But no, it's not. It's one person. I thought it's like a UN. It's like a group. But it's not. It's one person. So pick, please pick one name. Please have some mercy on me. Even if you have, even if you have multiple names, just give me one name. One name, one name. I don't want to know two names. I don't want to know your secret name and what your boyfriend knows about and what your mother and what used to call you when you were a little kid. Just give me one name that said, I remember, if I remember your name, it's already a miracle. Five names, come on, have some mercy. I need to leave some room for Torah. And I remember all these names. Five names. Stage name, yeah, the writer's name, my anonymous name. This is what the guys on YouTube know me as. On Facebook, it's something else. Profile name. Oh, this is one of the Mashiach role. That's what the name I'm playing as. So, it's supposed to be a serious lecture, guys. You guys are making me laugh too much. So, okay, so is that the shim. So now, you have. The uh, name Keturah was actually Hagar because Hagar did Tshuva. Hagar did Tshuva. Okay, said up. So this week's parasha, parasha Toldot, we uh, we see Ele Toldot Yitzchak ben Avraham, Avraham olided Yitzchak, ve'i Yitzchak ben Arbaim Shana bekachto et Rivka, bat betuel Arami, vipadan Aram achot lavan Arami, lo leisha. So we see that the, these are the... Uh, we're talking about the story of Avram and Yitzchak. And then it actually goes into a few extra details that seem like they're not necessary about Rivka. It says that when Yitzchak was 40 years old, he took Rivka, the daughter of Betuel, the Aramean, from Padan Aram, sister of Lavan, the Aramean, and his wife for himself. Okay, we already knew this from last week's parasha, that she was the daughter of Betuel, and she was the sister of Lavan. Why is the Torah mentioning it again? Why is the Torah mentioning it again? The Torah is mentioning it again for the same reason I told you the story about the Yavits. The Yavits taught us, what did he teach us in the 5, 10, 15 minutes of story that I told you about him? Don't complain. You don't have such a bad life. It doesn't matter what you have. You don't have the Yavits life. Unless you have Yavits life, you have no right to complain pretty much. Because why? He still managed to be Gdolado with all the problems that he had. So here, this week's parasha, Rivka is teaching us something else. You have no excuse. You have to do tshuva. Why? Rivka, where'd she come from? You can't say, oh, my father was not religious. My brother was atheist. My cousin was a murderer. No, no, no. Look at who she came from. Her father was a murderer. Her brother was the biggest mafioso in the world, biggest gangster in the world, to such an extent that Esav, who becomes the biggest gangster, is still scared of him. That's why when Yaakov ran to Lavan's house, why did, he, why did Rivka send her son Yaakov to Lavan's house, her brother? Because she knew that Esav, as big of a murderer as he is, he's still scared of Lavan. Everyone's scared of Lavan. Her reputation. So, 
This is the family she came from. Meaning, you have no excuse. Doesn't matter who, where you brought up, if you're from, from birth, if you're not, if you're pretending, you're not pretending. Doesn't make a difference. You have no excuses. Why? Rifkai Menu managed to become Rifkai Menu. Regardless of the situation that she was in. So Rifka is pregnant, and Hashem tells her in a prophecy, in verse 23, Shne goim bebitnech ushne leomim imaich yeparidu leom leom yeematz verav yavot sa'ir. And Hashem said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two regimes from your inside shall be separated. The might shall pass from one regime to the other, and the elder shall serve the younger. So here we're getting a prophecy that's relevant permanently. It's not a prophecy that's relevant only to her. In the Gemara Masechet Megillah, it says, uh, the Chazal asks, why is it that we only have 55 prophets mentioned in the Tanakh? Torah Nevi'im Ketuvim, Tanakh means Torah Nevi'im Ketuvim, it's the 24 books of the Tanakh. And there's 55 different prophets in the Tanakh mentioned. 48 males and 7 females. And the Gemara asks, how many prophets did Am Yisrael have throughout history? And Hashem answers, at least 1.2 million. So we're missing a few. What's the answer? Why, why don't we have their prophecies written down somewhere? And the reason why is because their prophecies for the 1.2 million, or the vast majority of the 1.2 million, were only relevant to a specific time. Their time, their location, and so on. Meaning, what do we learn from this? What's the pshat? What do we learn from this? The, uh, the, the lesson from here is that anything that's written in a Tanakh is eternally relevant. Meaning, anything, any prophecy that's written in a Tanakh is not prophecy just for the story. It's not prophecy just for Rivka to know. It's not prophecy just for Avraham, just for Yaakov, just for Moshe Rabbeinu. No, it's a prophecy for you. For you, right here. You watching. It's a prophecy for you. That's why it's written in the Torah. Because the Torah is eternal. So now Hashem is telling Rivka that there are two nations in the womb. So, as a couple of pirushim of what this means, the Gemara Masechet Avodah Zarah says that this one, one uh, prophecy that we actually learn from here is the birth of one of the most famous and extraordinary chavrutas that ever existed. Most extraordinary study partners, chavruta study partners, that ever existed. Most unusual circumstance but one of the most important chavutas that ever existed between Rebbe, Rabbi Udanasi, and Antoninus, the Roman emperor. Here, Hashem is telling us, two nations in your womb, two regimes, and this is actually what happened with this chavuta. Rebbe was chavuta with the Roman emperor. He was teaching him Torah. They were learning Torah together. And eventually... The Roman emperor actually converted to Judaism, left the empire, became a tzaddik, and so on and so forth. But the point is that there's a lot of different uh, um, laws in the Torah, a lot of different, uh, um, not laws, I'm sorry, a lot of different arguments and debates in the Gemara between them. And a few times, 
Antoninus wins. Antoninus wins. Antoninus gives the uh, gives the winning argument, and we go by him. So, point is that this chavuta was significant. We're not, I'm not going to, you know, I could talk to you about five hours just about the story uh, between them. The point is, this is a very famous chavuta. Why? Because it was unusual. Because he was not originally Jewish. He was from Esav. He was from Esav's side. And Rebbe was from Yaakov. He was actually a descendant of David Melech. He's a descendant of the Vina Melech, where the entire, all the Chachamim that lived in his generation said that if the Mashiach came right now, it would be Rebbe. It would be Rabbi Udanasi. He was that holy. And Rebbe, by the way, suffered his whole life through different stomach pains, teeth pains, and so on. The other thing that we actually learn from uh, Rav Gedalia Shor, one of the uh, original Gdolim in America, uh, that uh, Rav Kotler said he was the original Gadol. He was the original Gdolador in America. Lived in the early 1900s. And uh, he wrote in a uh, book, uh, Gedal Yahu, Parashat Toldot, different commentary on, uh, on the Torah. And he says, actually, there's a big secret in this verse. There's a very big secret in this verse about the original plan that Hashem had for Esav and Yaakov. We all know that Esav and Yaakov were twins. What most of us think is that Esav was predetermined, predestined to be a Rasha. To such an extent that the Prophet, uh, it's written, the Prophet, Hashem says to the Prophet, it Esav Saneti. Esav, I hated him. I hated Esav. The only person in the entire Torah that Hashem says, I hated him, is Esav. He says he's despicable, bazui, he's a despicable person. Mamash, Hashem, Mamash hates him. He has no share of the world to come. He's still suffering to this day, 4,000 years later. We're suffering from him to this day, 4,000 years later, from all of his descendants, the Romans, the uh, Nazis, all the anti-Semites, all the lefties, all the uh, Am- Amaleks, all of that comes from Esav. He's suffering, we're suffering also though. So a lot of people think, hey, it's not fair. Why is it that Esav was born to be a Rasha? Why should he suffer? If he was born to be a Rasha, then you shouldn't make him suffer for it. You shouldn't punish him for it. He was born to be a Rasha. If he didn't have free choice, then why are you punishing him for it? For example, we learned from Pa'o. Pa'o didn't die. His entire nation died when Hashem made the ocean, the Sea of Reeds, collapse on all the Egyptians. But Paro himself did not die. He became the king of Ninveh. He went downtown, became a new king for Ninveh. And we learn about him again in uh, the book of Jonah we learned about last week or two weeks ago. So, why did Paro not die? Even though he killed a lot of Jews, even though he was a Rasha Merusha, Hashem removed his free choice at some point. And because Hashem removed this free choice, Hashem did not punish him for the things he did because in essence, it wasn't his choice. So how come Hashem is punishing Esav until this day? Because Rav Gedal Yashor says originally the plan was quite different. As a matter of fact, until the two boys were late in their teens, I believe until they were 17 years old, you couldn't tell the difference between Yaakov and Esav. 
They were both Tamidei Chachamim. They were both going to Kolel. They were both geniuses. They were both Tzadikim. They both, everything was fantastic. Yeshiva, the best yeshiva, the best rabbis, chidushim, road, everything you want. Finish the shahs, babli, whatever you want, they finished. Same thing, you couldn't tell the difference between them. Esav didn't look like a murderer like they picture him in the illustrations. Esav looked like a chabad. Esav looked like Breslin. Esav looked with the payas and the, he was born with a beard. He looked more religious than Yaakov. He was born with a beard. Mamash, it says he was born hairy. He was born with a beard. Bemet. He was oh, ugly babies, a different story. Point is, he was born with a beard. Born already Hasid. He didn't look like a, a murderer. He looked like a Mamash, a tzaddik. Different story. Not 13, a little older. 15. But the uh, point is, is that for many years, no one can tell the difference. They both went to yeshiva. They both learned. He would come to Yitzchak and he would tell his Abba, Abba, how much, ma- how much ma'asel do I have to put for the salt? You don't have to do ma'asel for salt, by the way. How much ma'asel do I have to do for things that don't need ma'asel? To pretend like he's really righteous, like he's giving ma'asel on everything else, on the cows, on the sheep, on the gold, on the copper, on the whatever. Last thing he hasn't given ma'asel on, the tithe on, is the salt. Like says, don't be over righteous. So he pretended to be over righteous. He was righteous and not righteous, meaning that at some point something happened where everything changed. The original plan, Rav Shor says, was actually for the the two of them to run the world, Yaakov. And Esav was supposed to run the world, where six tribes out of the 12 tribes of Israel were supposed to be from Yaakov and six tribes from Esav. Six from Yaakov, six from Esav. Because Esav was a Ish, Tzaid, was a, was a Gibor, was a hero, he was supposed to go fight evil. Because Yaakov was a Tamit Chacham, would sit in the tent, he was supposed to go bring good to the world. So they were a perfect match. One fights the evil, one brings the good, Mashiach is going to come in a week. Six tribes from you, six tribes from you, everything is good. That was actually the Chidush from Avgedal Yashor. What happened? What happened? Later on, we find out that Avram Avinu dies when they're 15 years old. And uh, as part of the morning, Yaakov decides to cook. Yaakov decides to cook. The Midrash Me'am Loez says, Esav comes back from the hunting and he says, well, since when did you cook? Because haven't you heard our grandfather died? So it's customary for us to cook something round. Something round to show that the world goes around and life goes around. So Esav shows his true character here. And he says, 
I'm starving to the point where if I don't eat, I'm going to die. Give me this red stuff that you've made or else I will die. And what ends up happening is that he gives it to him. He sells him for, for his a uh, for his firstborn rights. But it says because he you know he said, give me this red stuff, this Adom. Adom in, in Hebrew is, uh, is red. Give me this red stuff. It says that from that point on, Hashem called him Edom. He ate something Adom, so Hashem called him Edom. So what does that mean? If I eat Bamba on the way here, they're going to call me yellow? Because Bamba is yellow? Or if somebody ate something that's green, they're going to call him green? Somebody ate a salad early this afternoon, they're going to call him green? So what if he ate something red? So he ate something red, big deal. How I mean, normally every food, every food you eat on Shabbat is red. So what, all of us are Edom also? Since when do you call somebody, since when do you start a nation, and you call them by a food color? So your color of your hair is black. I'm going to call you blacky? So what? So, okay, so you ate it. So what, he's the only chazir in the world? I know how many chazirim I know. People go to synagogue just to eat. They don't want to pray. They go to the synagogue just to eat. Mamash, just to eat. You see them. Sudash Lishit. They put, you know, a few people sponsor Sudash Lishit. They put it on the table, but you have to pray first. They don't care about prayer. They already start eating before the prayer. While they're praying, everybody else is praying, they're already eating. No Bikatamazon, no Motsi, no nothing. They're already eating like they've never eaten before. It's they're pretending they didn't just eat chulent or something for the afternoon the size of their head. Everybody pretends like Sudash Lishit is the first time they ever ate in their life. I don't understand how anybody can eat at all. By the time you get to Sudash Lishit, you already ate enough for a week. But somehow people pretend, oh, I'm going to call, I have to eat the salad. Pass that. Pass the pita. No, no, don't take everything. They fight over the food. Give me this, give me this. What, you haven't eaten, bro? Come to my house. I'll give you more food. Come to my house. You haven't eaten all day. Me scan. You start feeling bad for the guy. You haven't eaten all week. What happened? No, no, I ate. I ate. What'd you eat? I ate a big plate. So why are you so hungry? Why are you so hungry? Why are you acting like you never ate before? Why can't you pray five minutes, ten minutes, and then eat? What happened? Unfortunately, what happened is that some of us are a little A-subs. Some of us are little A-subs. What's the little A-sub? Hashem called A-sub A-dom because he ate something A-dom because in essence, the way he behaved defined him. Esav had an opportunity to be Gdolado. Esav had an opportunity no different than Yaakov Avinu. Esav's father was Yitzchak Avinu. Giant of giants. Someone that was willing to die for Hashem. Not one of us would say we could do the same. Esav's grandfather started, started Judaism. Avraham Avinu. Can't get better than that. Can't get better than that. People call their kids Avraham just in hopes that someone can connect the two in theoretical sense. Avraham Avinu, his grandfather, was alive in his, throughout his life. It's not like he was like a distant memory, a picture on the wall. Like people have tzaddikim, pictures on the wall all the time. They don't have any connection or at all to these tzaddikim. They don't even know their names, but they have them. Like sometimes you go to a uh, place for food, and you ask the guy, where's, you know, where's the kosher certificate? I think I told you guys this joke last week. Where's the kosher certificate? And the guy says, no, no, look, come on, Baba Sali, Baba Moshe Feinstein, 
okay. Ben Ishchai, all these tzedikim on the wall. It's like, yeah, if the tzedikim were here and your picture was on the wall, no problem. I'd trust them, I'd eat the food here. But since it's them on the wall and you here, I need the kosher certificate. So now, it was a good joke. You needed two weeks in a row. I don't have that much material. You gotta help me out here. You gotta write me some jokes. Give me some content. So I talked for three hours, no jokes. Today was good with it. So anyway, uh, Esav had an opportunity. Esav had an opportunity. His father couldn't get better. Grandfather couldn't get better. His brother is Chavuta, Yaakov Avinu. Torah says Yaakov Avinu was bigger than all of them. Yaakov Avinu was bigger than Avraham and Yitzchak. Even though he was the lowest in a generation, he was the third one. Usually goes, the closer we get to Adam Rishon, the greater. In this particular case, is an exception. First of all, he was born uncirc- he was born circumcised. Second of all, the midrash says he was as beautiful as Adam Arishon. He was as beautiful as Adam Arishon, meaning everyone in the world looked like monkeys next to him. Everyone in the world, including Sarai Menu, which was as beautiful as I can get, he looked like Adam Arishon. Third, Hashem decided to put his image image of Yaakov Avinu on his throne. Hashem has four images on his throne. A bull, an eagle, a lion, and Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov Avinu, why is he alive? It's an image. So next week's parasha, you're going to see when Yaakov Avinu falls asleep and it says the uh, angels go up and down. The angels go up and down. What are the angels going up and down? The Midrash says the angels go up to, to Shemaim, they see Yaakov Avinu. They go downstairs, they see Yaakov Avinu. How could you be in both places? Why? They see Yaakov Avinu on Hashem's throne. And then the angels up there say, no, no, go, he's down there, he's down there. They go down there. He's like, he's, how is he over here also? He's faster than us. Yaakov Avinu was his brother, was Esau's brother. You know this? He's his brother? He learned with him his whole life. But Esav was materialistic. Esav cared about Suda Shlishit, Suda Revit, Suda Chamishit, Suda Shishit. All day he thinks about food. All day he thinks about material. All day he can't stop being materialistic. It wasn't the food was red. It was his neshama was red. It was that his whole self, his whole being was whatever material was in front of him, that's it. The world ended. Dorador can be right next to him. As soon as he sees there's a little chips on the side, he runs to the chips instead of the Dorador. A new Gemara said, arrives at the house, he sees that there's a show on TV, he runs to the TV. There's a new Alakha, they're publicizing no more tight pants, no more skinny jeans. What does he think about? He's thinking about, oh, I should buy jeans. Skinny. He doesn't care, he doesn't care about the truth. He cares about material. He cares about what he looks like. He cares about what people look him at. He wants to have the watch that's bigger than his hand. He wants to have the suit that everyone can see the brand on the outside. So he takes the tag from the inside, puts it on the outside. Just so everybody knows, it's Calvin Klein or it's Donna Karen or one of these manufacturers. He wants to make sure that everyone knows he made it in life. He's materialistic. Esav was not that different than us. Esav consumed material to such an extent 
that he destroyed his own Olamaba. I sometimes tell people, hey, it's time to do tshuva. It's time to learn Torah. Time to ask yourself, why are you even here in this world? Start answering the question of why you're here in this world. It can't be to become a blender. All day you're eating, all day you're drinking, that's it. You eat a burger, you eat a steak, you eat this, you blend it in, and it comes out, that's it. That's what you came to the world to do, to just eat, 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 eat. Just consuming nonstop, pressing buttons so you can order more food, order more things that help you eat food. More and more and more, nonstop consumption. We've become a people that consume nonstop to such an extent that there are plenty of people in the world today, especially in the West, especially in America, that have gotten to the point where they start buying stuff, they buy brand new stuff, and they don't ever open it. It just stays in a box. It stays in a box. There's like shopping bags full of stuff that they bought, and they put it in a closet, and they forget about it. And it stays brand new in the box for months, years. One day they move, like, oh, wow, I forgot I bought those $500 worth of plates. I forgot about I bought this uh, $300 shoes. I forgot I bought, they, they buy, they consume so much that it's, they lose themselves. One time, the guy told me that he was moving. Downsizing from a big house to a small house, and he's it's a bunch of extra stuff in his house. Anyone that wants can just go and get it. Whatever is left, it's uh, free for all. And uh, we just moved to the area, and he said, Listen, maybe you could do something, maybe you can give some of the stuff out, maybe use something, whatever. So I went there. And I was thinking it was going to be a bunch of broken toys. Whatever, I'll use a couple of broken toys. We're just brand new. Maybe we'll uh, find something that works. Who knows what's going to be there? I arrive. Literally, 80% of the stuff is brand new. Not just brand new like it's like really good condition. Brand new, it still has a tag on it. Brand new like it's still in a shopping bag. Brand new like you can sell it as brand new. It's just there. But he's not the only one. We used to do the same thing. Plenty of people still do the same thing. We consume and consume and consume because we've, been, we've become addicted to material to such an extent that we don't even care about the material. We just care about the purchase. The fact that it's so easy to press one button on Amazon on one of these websites and boxes show up at your house... It's so much fun, at least theoretically, that you just want to press the button just to, just, just, just fun to do it. And boxes arrive a couple of days later. That, that becomes more fun than the material itself. You start ordering stuff. My friends, I'd say sav. I'd say sav. A sav connected to so much material that if he existed today, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between him and any of us. It's not because the food was red that they called him Edom. It's because the food represented him perfectly. He became so connected to material that he became the material. 
And that's how he lost his Olam Abba. Because eventually, he got so connected to the material, he forgot about the purpose of life. He forgot about the mitzvot. He forgot about God. You start telling the guy, why don't you uh, come to pray Mincha? Why don't you pray Alvit? Why don't you come to Bekneset? No, 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 I'm busy. What are you busy with? I'm busy making money so I can buy more stuff. We get to a point where we work so much, we don't even know why. Sometimes I hear from people like, oh yeah, you know, it's, we're having money problems. I'm thinking the couple is unemployed. He's unemployed, she's unemployed. I'm like, oh, so you guys are looking for jobs? No, no, we both have jobs. Oh, okay, you both work at homeless shelters maybe? For free? Nonprofit organizations pay you 500 bucks a month? Like, why? okay, if you both have a job, why do you have money problems? Do you make any money or you work for free? Maybe it's a volunteer. If you're volunteering, volunteer for me. I'll give you a couple of dollars anyway. No, no, we both make good money. She makes 3000 4000 a month and I make 3000 4000 a month. I said, so why do you have money problems? You make more than most people. I don't understand. Why do you have money problems? The reason we have money problems is because we consume to such an extent that we forget ourselves. We're constantly competing with the so-called Joneses. There's actually a term that was invented in America for this state of mind. You're competing with this theoretical people that don't exist. The Joneses that have everything. There's actually a movie made about it many years ago. Said, I think it was called the Joneses, actually, where they pretend to have everything. Unfortunately, we're constantly competing. We constantly have to have the brand new car. Why? Because if the neighbor has a brand new car, we don't have a brand new car, we already start suffering. If the neighbor is doing an extension to their house and we're not doing an extension to our house, we're already suffering. If the neighbor has brand new shoes, that are a month younger than ours, we already start suffering. If the neighbor's watch is bigger than ours, we already start suffering. We're constantly competing. The problem is, this is not Yaakov. This is not Yaakov's behavior. This is Esav. <coughs> this is Esav. The mindset that we have today in the religious world, I'm not even talking about the non-religious world, the religious world is that we're so much competition for material, we forgot about God. Instead of praying to Hashem and thanking Him for giving us eyes, ears, legs, arms, hair, for some of us at least, children, wives, husbands, jobs, air in our lungs, life with less pain than the Yavits, the ability to read in multiple languages or at least one, fresh food, the ability to go to the bathroom without screaming for three or four hours, at least for some of us, we forgot to thank Him for those things. You see people go to Biknesset every single day and the only times they wake up is when it comes to the blessings that have to do with money. When you say Kaddish, Everybody talks on the phone. Kadavi, Kadashim, Abba. We're praising Hashem's name. Nobody pays attention. The only one talking is the Chazan. See, Kadavi, Kadashim, Abba. Nobody cares. Nobody says Except when it gets to the end of the long Kaddish, the full Kaddish. Oh, when it says prophet, oh, everybody, everybody wakes up. The guy that was sleeping wakes up. The guy outside wakes up. The guy, everybody, the guy's off the phone. He hangs out. I gotta say, Revach. 
Everybody gets to wake up when he talks about money. When it gets to the blessing, Shmonaisle, you talk about money, again, anytime we talk about money, everybody wakes up. Aside from that, we're sleeping. We're sleeping on the wheel. People say that they have money problems even though they have two, three jobs. It's not normal. It's not normal. People are hungry after they just ate. You guys ever eat Chinese food? Kosher Chinese food? Five minutes later, you're hungry. It's the best business in the world. The customers are never full. Five minutes, you just ate Chinese food. Five minutes later, you're already hungry. Unbelievable. It's like what they put crack in it. Five minutes later, you just ate. You ate as big as your head. This food and that food and lo mein and the main. China is in your house. Kosher version. You just ate the whole thing. You ate as much as your head. Five minutes later, you finished. You just, you just put, you took, took a little tissue, you know, just to look civilized. The tissue goes down, you're hungry, you want a second meal. Unbelievable. I don't know how it's possible. You're always hungry. I don't know what they put inside. All I know is that I'm not eating Chinese food ever again. It's a never-ending business, like a never-ending monster. So, the problem is that the rest of our lives are like that. We're constantly getting more stuff, and the stuff is becoming meaningless. We've become addicted to pressing buttons. We've become addicted to competing with our neighbors. We've become addicted to the materialistic part of our life, that if the house is not perfect, we're suffering already. If the car is not perfect, we're suffering already. And any time you tell a person, listen, it's a fast day, just the, fast, just the fact that you have to fast from morning to afternoon or to evening, people already start suffering a day before the fast started. Like, no, no, the fast is tomorrow, man. Relax. No, no, no. I don't know. I feel hungry. I'm like, well, hungry. eat then. You see, the fast is tomorrow. The fast, eat the Chinese. The fast is tomorrow. You're already thinking that you're not going to have. You're already suffering. I'm here to tell you that all of this suffering is a sub's behavior. It's not Yaakov. We've turned into a nation of little a subs, little a doms. Instead of being Kodesh Kodeshim like Yaakov Avinu. Eventually, he forgot about God to such an extent that he committed five of the worst possible sins in the same day. The same day that he sold his, uh, his, uh, uh, what's firstborn rights? He denied God. He raped a bride. He murdered somebody. But why do you get, how do you get to such an extent? How do you get to become such a rasha when your father's dolado, your grandfather's a giant, your brother's, everybody said, how do you get to go off the derch to that extent? Listen, you're not going to be the dolado, okay, fine, no problem. You're not going to be the biggest tzaddik, okay, fine. How do you go from this corner to that corner? Everyone's a giant. You're the worst person on earth. How could it be? Problem is that when you become so materialistic, eventually you become numb. One of the things you notice in the in Hollywood, aka Sodom and Gomorrah of today, is that many of these people that are being accused of uh, raping, molesting little children used to be normal. They used to be normal, like you and I. They used to be normal. They used to be married to wives. They used to be normal people. One mate, 
one person committed, honest, trying to be at least normal. They were, they were no, they weren't born psychotic. How do you go from that to a psychopath that has a ring of little children you're going to rape? How do you go to that level? How do you go from being a normal person to now you're a homosexual that pretty much wants to be with anything that moves? How do you do that? How do you get? How do you, how do you get there? Some of these people are good-looking people. Hashem blessed them with good looks, and they only want to be with the same sex. They can't stand the opposite sex. How could it be? How could it be? It could be because they all became Asav. They all became so materialistic with physicality that they overconsumed. They ate too much Chinese food. One mate was not enough, so they got a second mate. Second mate wasn't enough, so they got a third mate. And eventually got to a new one every day, a new one every week. And eventually got to a point where the same thing was meaningless. They became numb. The pleasure they used to get, like every normal person, disappeared. When you have too much of something, it becomes disgusting. Even if your favorite food is steak, or whatever is your favorite food is. If I tell you that for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you're only going to have steak, or whatever your food is, every day. After a day, you're happy. After two days, not so happy. Three days, you're not happy at all. A week, you hate me. Two weeks, you hate the steak. Three weeks, you don't want to eat. Four weeks, you're suicidal. Not only do you not want to eat steak, but just the word steak, or whatever the food that you ate nonstop is, just the word itself gives you a physical reaction what makes you sick. You've become not only numb to the benefits, you've actually become disgusted by it. There's a pasuk in the Torah that Shlomo HaMelech says, Dvash matzata echol dayeka, kentis If you found dvash, if you found honey, eat a little bit. Eat a little bit. You found honey. Honey is delicious. In those days, that was the candy. If you found honey, it's delicious. If you like honey. Shlomo Melech says, eat a little bit. Why? I need diet rules from Shlomo Melech. Mind your own business, Shlomo. What do you care if I eat a lot or not? He says, if you eat a lot, eventually you're going to throw up. You're going to vomit. Meaning, even though dvash, even though honey, is delicious for most people. It's the greatest food, let's say. It's an example of the greatest food. The sweet, beautiful, natural, not fattening, whatever. Gluten-free. Everything is good, right? If you have too much of it, eventually you're going to vomit. If you have too much of it, eventually you're going to vomit. But the real secret in this pasuk is different. The real secret is that it's not about honey. The real secret is that it's about seed. It's about, it's about sex. Since you find a woman, easy. Take it easy. Keep tarat mishpacha. Half the month you're together, half the month you're not together. Why? You have too much, you're going to be disgusted. She's going to hate you, you're going to hate her. That's why you see Hollywood get divorced every day. Every day, oh, this uh, so-and-so got married. It's only marriage number 87. 
Oh, they just adopt, adopted their 37th kid. They never actually had kids themselves, but they adopted 37. Why? They never stayed married long enough to actually have kids. Everyone's married five, six, seven times, and it's very normal. This is the secret of Tarat Mishpacha. secret of even intimacy has to be within reason. Esav didn't have this control of himself. And he lost his Olam because of that. Now this Mishnah that we have, that we haven't even started, so this was the introduction, guys. Now we still have about two, three hours left. Uh, so this Mishnah gives us a little bit of an understanding, a little connection to this. It says, So he used to say, since it says he used to say, it's referring to the same Tana that talked about something, that taught us about something, the previous Mishnah, which Rabbi Yaakov. Rabbi Yaakov, the grandson of Achel. So Rabbi Yaakov says, better one hour of tshuva and good deeds, repentance and good deeds, in this world than the entire life of Olam of the world to come. And better is one hour of spiritual bliss in Olam in the world to come, than the entire life in this world. So this Mishnah tells us a few principles that if we actually knew, understood, and applied them to our life, it could fix our Esav syndrome. Rabbi Yaakov is trying to tell us how we could refocus our attention, refocus our lives in order to heal our Edom syndrome. He says... If a person understands why they came to the world and they realize they didn't come to the world to eat steak. And if they do, fine, but it's not the purpose. They didn't come to the world to make money. But if they do, fine, but it's not the purpose. They didn't come to the world to go on vacation. And if they do, it's fine, but it's not the purpose. Hashem says, I brought, I made a beautiful world for you. Enjoy it, but it's not the purpose. Enjoy it. You know, it's not, it's not a sin to enjoy the world. But it's not the purpose. Sometimes the Torah allows us to do certain things, but it tells us that not only is it not the purpose, you actually shouldn't do it. But wait a minute, you just said it's allowed. But you shouldn't do it. One of the examples is that if we go to battle... If we go to battle, after the battle, we beat the enemy. There's, what's left is the women and children. The soldiers are allowed to take the women and marry them, be with them. After they put them through a month of delay, where they shave their head, they make them very, very ugly, they allow them time to mourn. But after that month... They're allowed to be with them. They're allowed to marry them if they still want them. Some post-scheme actually say that they're allowed to be with them one time without marrying them and then wait a month to be with them for the rest of, you know, however long they want to be with them, to marry them. 
So, this is a mitzvah that's in the Torah. Fine. David Melech, who's Kodesh Kodeshim, the fourth part of the Merkava, of the Shechina, you have Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and then David Melech. David Melech, one time, started getting some suffering in his life, and he didn't understand why he's getting all this suffering. And the prophet came to him and told him, it's because you did something wrong. Immediately, David Melech started apologizing, crying hysterically. What should I do? How could I fix it? What did I do? I know I did something wrong. Suffering is not happening for no reason. Not like us. Like we question God, Hashem. You know, you maybe you're making a mistake. David Melech said, avinu pashanu. I did something. Of course I did something. Just what? What did I do? The prophet told him, you took a woman as part of a war. It's like, yeah, but I'm allowed. It's the law says I'm allowed. It says you're allowed. But you shouldn't. Why you shouldn't? Because the very next verse says that the son that will come out of it will be a ben soreru more. Meaning the son is going to be a wayward son. It's going to be a criminal. So Hashem gave us the sign that this is allowed, but you shouldn't do it. So why should he allow something that he shouldn't do? Because Hashem says here in this case, I know my people. I know their nature that I created them with. And I know that if I didn't allow them to be with these women at the end of war, the adrenaline is so high at the end of a war, the testosterone is so high at the end of a war, the craziness is so high at the end of a war, that if I didn't give them a way to make this permissible, they would do it anyway in a, impermiss- in a, in a, in a way that's not allowed. In essence, instead of it being allowed, they would now make a sin. So they went into the war tzadikim, they came out of the war rashaim. Because the only people that were allowed to go to war... In those days, were tzaddikim. Only tzaddikim were allowed to go to war. If you actually look at the details of the requirements to be a soldier at the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, Yeshua ben Nun, David Melech, Shaul, and so on, the real righteous kings of Am Yisrael, if you actually understood the requirements of what you need to have and what you need to be in order to be a soldier, in their army, you realize you have to be gdol adol. You have to be a giant, chacham. You have to be a tzaddik. Never sinned. Never sinned. Not even, not even talking between putting your tefillin on the arm and on the, on the head. It's not even a small sin. If you made a small sin, they tell you you're not allowed to come to war. You're going to kill all of us. Your one sin can kill all of us. Don't come if you made one sin. So these people went to war with tzaddikim. Hashem says they went into the war tzaddikim. I don't want them to leave the war reshaim. So I'm going to allow him to do it, but you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't do it. Just because it's allowed doesn't mean you should. So, there are many things in life that are allowed, but you shouldn't do it. And sometimes it's mitzvot. Sometimes it's things that the Torah allows us to do, but you shouldn't do it. Unfortunately, when people are looking for excuses, they only look for the things that they shouldn't do. Because they're allowed to do it. So, for example, sometimes you tell people, listen, you know, you have to cover your hair. 
Oh, okay, so, but look at this Rabbanit. She's, uh, she's wearing a, uh, a hat and she's showing half her hair. It's fine? No. But she's a Rabbanit. Doesn't make a difference. Just because she's doing it doesn't mean it's allowed. Oh, well, look at this one. She's wearing a skirt. It's barely covering the knees. Is that allowed? I'm like, it's a borderline kosher. It's not really that kosher, but it's, it's kosher. It's like, mamash, on the line. If you want to be with a safek on the line, uh, fine, you want to be. People are constantly looking for excuses just to get in. And this is a problem. This is a very big problem. So, the... Rabbi Yaakov is telling us is that if we actually start understanding our purpose in life, things will change quite a bit. Because we realize that this world is the only world we could possibly do chuvah in. We did not come to this world to have a party. We did not come into this world to eat steaks. We did not come into this world to become blenders. We came into the world to work. We came into the world to do tshuva. Now, he says that better one hour of tshuva and good deeds in this world than an entire olam haba. Meaning that even one hour of you doing tshuva in this world is more than you could ever do in olam haba. Meaning that in olam haba, there's no more tshuva. There's no tshuva in Olam Abba. Once you get to Olam Abba, that's it. You're as, as is. As is. What you appear as is what you what you stay as. Meaning if your Olam Abba is good, it's good permanently. If it's bad, you're in trouble. So the nations of the world, in Gemara Masechet Abu Dazara, page 3a, the nations of the world said, Ribbono Shel Olam, Master of the Universe, Give the Torah to us, and we'll observe it. Meaning, give us another try. This is, in essence, a what's going to happen when the Mashiach comes. So the Goyim say to Hashem, Okay, listen, we didn't follow your Torah until now. But give it to us now. Give it to us now, and we'll follow it. Now that we know that the Mashiach is here, we know that you're real, we know that J.C. Penny is just an idiot that died 2,000 years ago that was really a, uh, a mamzer. We know that Buddha is just a statue you buy in Chinatown for 15 bucks. It's worth nothing. We know the cow is really just a cow you can make steaks out of. We know that all of this Abu Dazarai in the world is all worthless. The God of Israel is the only God. Everything else is nonsense. We know now. We know the Torah is real. We know the only real prophets are the Jewish prophets. We know that Moshe Rabbeinu is the prophet of all prophets. Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, the patriarchs. And so we know the Torah as is, 24 books of the Tanakh, that's it. We know that's the truth. There's nothing else, nothing more, nothing less. That's it. This is it. We know. So give us the Torah from now, and we'll do it. The Holy One, blessed is He, says to them, Shotim Shebaolam, Mishetarach Be'erev Shabbat, Yochal Be'Shabbat. Says, drunks of the world, fools of the world, Whoever toiled on the eve of Shabbat will eat on Shabbat. Shabbat. But whoever did not toil on the eve of Shabbat, from where will he eat on Shabbat? So Chazal explained what does this mean on Shabbat? What is this talking? What is it talking about? 
talking about if you're going to celebrate Shabbat in a kosher way, that means you already have to start preparing on Monday, on Sunday. You can't start preparing for Shabbat three hours before Shabbat starts. Because if you start preparing for Shabbat three hours before Shabbat starts, most likely you're going to violate Shabbat. Most likely some of the food is not going to be ready and you're going to cook it on Shabbat. Most likely you're not going to be ready mentally and you're going to press the light even though Shabbat already started because by accident your mind wasn't there. Most likely you're going to take a shower 5, 10, 15 minutes into Shabbat. Most likely you're going to do something that's going to violate Shabbat. Why? Because you're not ready for Shabbat. You got ready last few minutes. So Hashem says you want to be ready for Shabbat. You have to already start on Sunday. The Chachamim, the Tzadikim, the Nevi'im, the Tanaim, all of the greatest of Am Yisrael would already start Shabbat in the beginning of the week. It says Shammai, from Bet Shammai, Shammai, the original Shammai, already will start his shopping for Shabbat on Sunday. You would buy something, whatever was the best in the store, you would buy it. But then if he saw something better on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, he would buy it. And whatever he already bought, he would eat it during the week. So let's say, for example, he bought a nice piece of juicy meat on Sunday. Looks good. Going to make good for chulent. Wow, amazing. But on Tuesday, a better meat, piece of meat came into the market. So he buys that piece of meat. The other one he eats today. But then, on Friday afternoon, sees another bit piece of meat. So, that one we put in the somewhere else. We're going to make the best piece of meat. It's a famous story in the Gemara about a person by the name of uh, Yosef Mukir Shabbat. You guys know the story, Yosef Mukir Shabbat? Yosef Mukir Shabbat was a tzaddik kadosh that respected the Shabbat in such a significant way that the Gemara has a story about him, his life story, but he literally got the name of someone, his name turned from what is Yosef, to Yosef Mukir Shabbat. Yosef, that honors Shabbat. That became his name. Like it says, Rabbi Kadosh, which is Rabbi Udanasi. Rabbi Kadosh defines who he is. Yosef Mukir Shabbat defined who Yosef was. Yosef that honors Shabbat. Why? Shammai didn't honor Shabbat. Hillel didn't, didn't honor Shabbat. Moshe Rabbeinu didn't honor Shabbat. What, what did Yosef do so special? Well, the truth is that Yosef was very poor. Very, very poor. And he would struggle to survive and not eat throughout the entire week just to make sure that all of his money was spent to make his Shabbat as extraordinary as can be. All of his money would spend just on Shabbat. One day, the fortune tellers came to a rich non-Jew, idol worshiper, and they told him, listen, we see a fortune in the stars that all of your wealth is going to go to this uh, Yosef Mukir Shabbat persons that live somewhere else. What do you mean all my wealth? I'm a billionaire. I have real estate in uh, Bali, in Dubai, in New York. I got skyscrapers. I got stocks. I own Google. I own Tyco. I own... How could I lose all that? All the money is going to go to one guy. How? Even if the stock market crashed, real estate is still going to be okay. 
Even if the real estate market crashed, my oil is still going to be okay. Even if the oil crashed, I still have some bitcoins. How could I lose all of it to this guy? But you know, a rich guy, a rich guy, rich people, the richer they are, the more they worry about money. I met a lot of rich people in my life. That's what I used to do. And the funny thing is about rich people is that they're always worried about money. But not money that they have. Money that they want to get. Oh, what's going to happen next year if the economy doesn't do good, if uh, this guy doesn't get elected, if taxes go higher, if taxes go lower, if oil goes this way, if oil goes that way. Hey, buddy, you already have $20 million in the bank. What are you so worried about? These people in the world don't have food to eat. They're not worried about the food to eat. They're worried about next year, what's going to happen, and what's going to happen in five years, in ten years, in twenty years. That's why you see a lot of these big investors, they invest in things from ten years from now. Why? I still have to be in a Forbes 500 in ten years from now. Has for shalom, I don't make the Forbes 500. I'll kill myself. So now, this guy, some people told him that he's going to lose all of his money. He can't sleep. He doesn't know what to do. He wakes up in the morning and goes, all right, listen, I got to protect my wealth. I got a plan. I'm going to sell everything. He sells everything he has. Everything he has gets a bunch of cash. He goes, I need the diamond, the most expensive diamond in the world. He buys a billion-dollar diamond. He's like, all right, this diamond, not only am I going to hold it on me with bodyguards and everything, I'm going to tie it under my little hat. Inside, I'm going to sew it inside so it's not, it can't fall out. Sew it inside the hat. A little turban that he had. Put it on his head. It's like all of his money's on his head. Only thing that's left is a little bit of cash to pay the uh, taxes on the, on the property. Other than that, he's good. He's got all billion dollars on his head. He's walking on his land. Everything is good. As Hashem would have it one day, a wind comes and his hat his little turban flies off his head right into the river. This guy almost has a heart attack, jumps into the river chasing his hat, but the hat is long gone. A huge fish eats the hat. Eventually, the hat disintegrates inside the fish, and the diamond is left. And one day, a fisherman catches this huge fish on a Friday afternoon right in the town of Yosef Mokir Shabbat. Now this is already late afternoon. He goes to the market. Everyone already left. Only one person is packing up. He goes, what do I want to do with this hat? What can I do with this fish? This fish. Wow, it's a beautiful fish. It's what, 50 pound fish. Who's going to buy it? Somebody rich has to buy this fish. He goes, listen, the only person that would buy a fish now, such a fish like this, is only Yosef Mokir Shabbat. Where is he lived? He lives down the street in a little hole, cave over there. Doesn't have any money, doesn't have any food, doesn't have anything. But if somebody asks, he's going to buy it. If you bring your wife a fish at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, she's not going to cut the fish open. She's going to cut you open. She's going to cut you open because, what, you bring in all this stinky smell. Already finished her body already. At 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you finish her body. You want, a fish, you want to bring a fish into the house at 2 o'clock in the afternoon? Put you next to the fish. Put you in a tank and a fish on the table. So the guy comes to Yosef Mokir Shabbat, do, 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 hello, I got a big fish, guy's got a dolphin, giant fish over here, kosher fish, size of a dolphin, Yosef Mokir Shabbat falls in love with this fish, wow, what a fish, 
What a beautiful fish. How much is this fish? He says it's uh, ten, uh, 10 coins. This is all of Yosef Mukil Shabbat money. All the money that he has. Everything. The savings, the 401k, the IRA, the stock portfolio, the Google, the Bitcoins, everything he has. Why? It's Shabbat. He says, it's a little expensive, but it's Shabbat. He gives him the money, cash on the spot. Honey, I know it's 2.30 in the afternoon. Please don't cook me. Let's cook the fish for Shabbat. His wife was a tzaddikit. She opens the fish, and lo and behold, they see a billion-dollar diamond and turn it to the richest people in the land. This is a Gemara story. It's a real story. Point being is that when someone honors the Shabbat, life changes. Life changes. Someone doesn't honor the Shabbat. Life also changes. So Rabbi Yaakov is saying that if you didn't always honor the Shabbat, you made some sins, you messed up a few times. You know, like 20, 30, 40, 50 years of your life you messed up. You didn't keep Shabbat a few times. You can't show up to Shemaim with a Shabbat deficit. You can't show up to Shemaim and say, listen, I, I, I didn't keep Shabbat 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, and now I'm here. Why? Because Gemara says, if you show up to Shemaim and you didn't do Tshuva, Gemara Masechet Rosh Hashanah, page 17, says the genome of those people doesn't end. Meaning the punishment never ends. Shemarachem. Someone that doesn't, a Jew that doesn't keep Shabbat, is considered 100% an idol worshiper in the eyes of Hashem, to such an extent that their Judaism is on suspension while they're alive. If they die, they die as an idol worshiper, which means the worst possible death, the worst possible punishment. It doesn't get worse than an idol worshiper. It doesn't get worse. Because literally, when you're an idol worshiper, aside from being stupid in the eyes of every normal man and woman, aside from that, you become the biggest rasha in the eyes of Hashem. And the reason why is because you've replaced Him, the source of everything, with nothing. You've replaced Hashem Barach that created everything with His creation's creation. Because the idol is not even the creation. The idol is the creation's creation. The idol is the man's creation. So it's not even the creation itself. It's the lowest form of creation. You've replaced everything with nothing. Dying on Mechalel Shabbat, that's what you've turned into. So now Rabbi Yaakov is saying... One hour of doing tshuva in this world is something you can't do in Olam Abba. Why? Once you're in Olam Abba, that's it, you're finished. If you've cooked for Shabbat, you'll be ready for Shabbat. You didn't cook for Shabbat, you're finished. You're going to be Mechalel Shabbat. You have to do tshuva in this world. You have to do tshuva in this world. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know it's different. I know that all the reasons in the world I had also. All the excuses in the world that you have, I had more. It doesn't make a difference. It doesn't matter. Your excuses are worth absolutely zero in Shemaim. Zero. Zero in Shemaim. All the excuses of not keeping mitzvot are worth absolutely zero in Shemaim. Zero. Like not even 1%, 2%, zero. Big zero. Big, huge zero. Just draw in your mind the biggest zero in the world. That's how much it's worth. Why? Because to say that that excuse is valid, would make Hashem chas v'shalom evil. How so? What is it like? Each one of you, Baruch Hashem, has a parent. Has two parents. Hopefully they're all alive. If they're not, you still, you've obviously had parents. Everyone has parents. 
Now, every normal parent loves their child. When I see my little kids, I see little Sarah and Ovadia, I think they're the greatest thing on earth other than their mother. Their mother is the greatest, Levana is the greatest, the Rabbani is the greatest, and the kids. So now, I see my little kids. Now, because I love them, I'm not going to tell little Sarah, it's two and a half years old, Honey, go pick up the car. Pick up the car on your head and bring it inside the living room. I'm not going to tell that. I'm not going to tell little Ovadia that just started to stand up, Baruch Hashem. Ovadia, go pick up the house on one hand and walk around the neighborhood with it. Ovadia, go make a barbecue for the whole family. Make a nice steak. I'm not going to tell him that. Why am I going to make it? Why am I not going to say it? Because I know he can't do it. So if I tell him to go do something that I know for sure he can't do, that's evil. That's mean. I'm setting him up to fail. I'm not going to set up my kids to fail because I love them. I'm not going to tell them, go do something that I know for sure they cannot do. She cannot pick up the car in her head. He cannot pick up the house in their head. Maybe one day they can't. Today they can't. Today they can't. I'm not going to tell them to go do it now just to see them fail. Why? Because that will destroy their whole system. Their whole system that they have, their whole spine is going to collapse. Their whole mindset is going to collapse. Their confidence is going to disappear. They will realize that they, they will think that they're incapable. Because if Abba tells them to go do something and they can't do it, they'll say, well, Abba is only telling me to do it because he thinks I can do it. Now, if I can't do it, that means I'm a loser. They will think they're failures. But in reality, I'm the failure. I'm the evil one. Why? Because I told them to go do something they can't do. And I knew they can't do it. Not that they should be able to. No, I knew for sure they can't do it. Now I'm human. I'm the creation. I'm not even a creator. I'm a creation. I am one of the lowest forms. But yet, Hashem Barach, somehow, some way, all of us are convinced He gave us stuff that we can't do. If I'm smart enough to know that I'm not going to do it to my kids, why don't you guys think that Hashem is smart enough not to do it to His kids? If Hashem told you to keep mitzvot, that means He knows for sure that you can do it. If Hashem says keep Shabbat, that means He knows for sure that you can keep Shabbat. If Hashem says don't go and become intermarried, that's because He knows that you can avoid intermarriage. That's because he knows you can break up from intermarriage if necessary. That's because he knows you can keep the entire Torah. That's because he knows you can study Torah. If he gave you a mitzvah, if he gave you a commandment, that's because he knows for sure, without a shadow of a doubt, that you can pass. Not only pass, but you get a perfect grade. Because to say otherwise is kfirah in Hashem. It's heresy in Hashem. It's actually calling Hashem evil. If he's not capable of having children, then he's anus. Then he's not obligated to have children. You're only obligated to do things that you can do. If somebody is, for example, if somebody, if everyone is obligated to run, but one person doesn't have legs, he's no longer obligated to run because he can't. Same concept goes with Hashem. If a woman doesn't have a head, if a woman doesn't have a head, she doesn't have to put kisui on. She doesn't have to cover her head. If she doesn't have a head, she doesn't have to cover her head. So you have one head tail. 
one hetel, one leniency, where any woman in the world, any woman that's watching, doesn't have a head, she doesn't have to cover her head. Anyone that has a head has to cover their head. But if she doesn't have a head, she's good. Any guy that doesn't have a head also doesn't have to cover his head. But if he has a head, he has to cover his head. So the key is that we have to do everything that we can do. If we can't do it, because we have some type of deformity, some type of disability, then we're no longer obligated. We're anusim. But the reality of it is that all of us are perfectly fine to do everything. All of us are perfectly fine to have children, to learn Torah, to fulfill the mitzvot, to be kosher people, to work on our midot, to work on our character traits, and the things we say, oh, this is hard for me to do, in reality, we can do them. We don't want to do them, but we can do them. I was talking to a wonderful woman the other day, and I was telling her, listen, you have to work on your modesty, the, toy, the, the clothes you have to actually start wearing, you have to cover yourself, you have to wear looser clothes, you have to look like a Jewish woman. No, no, I can't do it. I said, why? Why can't you do it? She said, it's hot. It's hot. I said, oh, so are you the first of your kind? She said, what do you mean? I said, are you the first of your species or are there other people like you in the world? She goes, no, there's other people in the world. I said, no, because according to my history, there's been people in the world for thousands of years. And until recent generations, none of them had air conditioners. None of them. But yet all of them wore more clothes than you. None of them had air conditioners. Some of them lived in the desert for 40 years. But no one complained. One pasuk in the Torah, oh, it's hot. You ever see a Sarai man who's saying, oh, I'm in a desert. No air conditioning, it's hot. I'm going to put a bikini on. Excuses. You don't want to, but you can. You don't want to, but you can. That's a reality. So, people need to understand that for all of these mistakes that we're making, the time to do tshuva is now, in this world. After this world, there's no more time. There is no more time. So now, what is tshuva? What is actually tshuva? We always talk about doing tshuva. What is actually tshuva? First and foremost, you should see the mind of a ish kadosh. The mind of a holy person works very different than regular people. So first and foremost, the Rambam says in Ilchot Tshuva, chapter 1, of, a, uh, of Ilchot Tshuva, and it says, Kol mitzvot shebatura ben aseh ben lo ta'aseh im avar adam alachat mehem ben bezadon ben beshkaga kshe'aseh tshuva v'yashuv mecheto chayav li'tvadot lifnei ha'el baruchu. So it says, if a person transgresses any of the mitzvot of the Torah, whether positive commandment or negative commandment, whether willingly or inadvertently, when he repents and returns from his sin, he must confess before God, blessed be he. Now, if you haven't caught it, this intricate part of the language that the Rambam uses is extraordinary. I remember I told you guys, people that learn the Rambam, don't just learn what he said. They learn how he said it. Now, us, we're thinking, he's just saying, anyone that made a sin, went against the Torah, he has to do tshuva. 
And the tshuva begins with him confessing to Hashem, by the way, I made a sin, I'm sorry. That's in essence what it means to most of us, the first time you read it. Second time you read it, third time you read it, fourth time you read it, it means the same thing. But if you actually understand the words of what he's saying, whether English or Hebrew, you'll see something more significant. First of all, he says, if a person transgresses, not when a person transgresses, if a person is crazy enough to transgress, if a person transgress, if a person makes a sin, im avar, im avar adam alachatmen, im 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 means if, if he made a sin, if it happened chas v'shalom, if it happened that you actually sinned, for us in our mind it's when I sin, in his mind it's if he sins, he says, and then he says when he repents, when he repents. Meaning, there's no such thing as you making a sin and not repenting. There's no such thing in, in the mind of a Ish Kadosh like the Rambam. There's no such thing as someone that's a Jew, that's a son of Hashem, it's a daughter of Hashem, making a sin and not repenting. Unless they're a Shah, unless there's no hope for them, which he has a whole chapter about those people. So when a person transgresses, he repents. What's to repent? The key, how does he repent? He confesses. How does one confess? He says out loud, Ana Hashem chatati aviti pashati lefanecha v'asiti kach v'kach. He says, I implore you God, I've sinned, I've transgressed, I've con- committed iniquity before you by doing whatever the sin was. Behold, I regret it and I'm embarrassed for my deeds and I promise to never repeat the act again. It says, this is the foundation, this is the most important part of tshuva. Saying this out loud, talking to Hashem, whether it's through your idvodidut, or it's in your living room, or it's uh, in your study, or it's in your car, wherever you have peace of mind, whatever it is, you want to do tshuva, it has to be verbalized. It has to be verbalized. Meaning, if you just say, no, listen, from now on I'm going to keep Shabbat. Okay, you're going to keep Shabbat, that's good, you're making mitzvot. But as far as repenting for the Shabbat you violated, you haven't done yet. I'm going to leave my uh, non-Jewish girlfriend. Great. That's great that you are now going to go into a kosher relationship. Great. But... The sins you've made up to now, you still haven't started tshuva. How do you start tshuva? You have to say, I'm sorry Hashem, I sinned. And the first part is feel bad about it. Confess it and feel bad about it. And it has to be verbalized. Why verbalized? We said this before the shiul started. Many times in the Torah, we see that Hashem showed us things that He could have easily told us. For example, He tells Moshe Rabbeinu, remember, make the menorah or do the mitzvot that I showed you in the mountain. Chazal tells us that Hashem actually showed Moshe Rabbeinu how to do the mitzvot, how to do tefillin, how to do all these different things. He showed him how to do it. Why did He show it to him? So one day, Rabbi Yisrael Misalant comes to his yeshiva, comes to his Bet Musar, where the focus was learning Musar day and night. 
and he brings a big fish with him. Still alive, in the water. Brings a big fish. He puts it on the table. Everyone knew that Rabbi Israel is a very serious person. He's not here for, he's not getting a pet. And he's not bringing his lunch. So everyone's wondering, why did he bring a fish? So they all surround to see what's happening here. They're looking at the fish. Rabbi Israel takes the fish out of the water. Gives it a little tap on the head. Fish dies. Puts it on a table. Takes out a machete. Chops off the fish's head. So the students ask for the Rav, what's the pshat? What are you doing here? What, what's, what, what do we need? What's this for? He says to them, this is what they're going to do to you in Shemaim if you don't learn Torah. Because the Gemara says, someone that's a'ma'aret, someone that's an ignorant, they should cut him from the back of the neck. They should chop off his head from the back of the neck. He gives up his right to live. Someone who doesn't want to learn Torah, doesn't want to fulfill the will of Hashem. So he tells his students, he's not telling Rishayim, he's telling Tzadikim. Little Tzadikim, Tzadikim, Tzadikim. He says, this is what they're going to do to you in Shemaim if you don't learn Torah. So all the tzaddikim say, for the Rav, we know, we learn this in the Torah, we learn this in the Gemara, we learn, we learn from you already. He goes, yeah, you learn it in the books, but you need to see it. Because seeing is different than hearing or, or reading. So we see that in Shemaim, Hashem Barach made sure to show Moshe Rabbeinu some of the mitzvot. Show Moshe Rabbeinu some of the mitzvot. So the first thing when a person does tshuva, he has to verbalize his tshuva. He has to say something. He has to say it out loud. There's a machloket. Some say you should say it in front of people. It's considered meritorious to say it in front of people to admit your flaws in front of people. Some say it's actually a bad thing to do. Why? Because potentially it can give you more suffering than you deserve, or perhaps it can cause other people to sin. So, for example, especially in this generation, if you made any sex crimes whether it's being with a woman you're not allowed to be with or anything of the like, if you say this next to some of your friends, you may encourage them to go sin instead of encouraging them to go do tshuva. So in reality, in our day today, I think it's more likely to just do this simply alone. But the point is, the Rambam says, you have to say I'm sorry. Now how significant, what if you don't say I'm sorry? What if you don't say I'm sorry? You don't feel like it. You say I'm sorry like inside. A really, really low voice. Like, you know, like nobody can hear you, including yourself. No one can hear you. What about that? It says, in the times of the Bet, of Bet Mikdash, the Rambam language, in the times of Bet Mikdash, you'd have to bring a korban. You'd bring a korban, big cow, 10, 15, $25,000 cow. Why you lit the light on Shabbat by accident? By accident, you t- turn on the light. If you did it on purpose, they kill you. If you did it by accident, you have to bring a cow. You did it on purpose, they kill you. There's no second chances. You turn on the light on Shabbat, they kill you. Death penalty. You go cook on Shabbat. Oh, no, no, I didn't know it's Shabbat. Okay, by accident? Okay, bring a cow. On purpose, we're going to cook you. It's no joke. In Shabbat, it's a big deal. So now people come to Bet Mikdash with a cow, $25,000 cow, big giant cow. 
And they bring him Koban, $25,000. The guy just spent his life savings on this cow for one sin, one little accidental sin he made last Shabbat, three months ago. So, the Rambam says, the sacrifice will not atone for their sin until they repent and make a verbal confession. As it says in Leviticus 5.5, he shall confess the sin he has committed concerning it. Meaning that if he brought a $25,000 cow, but he didn't say out loud, hey, by the way, I'm sorry, I'm really, really sorry, I'm terribly sorry that I turned on the light by accident on Shabbat. I'm terribly sorry I cooked on Shabbat by accident. I turned on the fire by accident. I'm sorry, by accident. I'm really, really sorry. It's making me, I can't sleep at night. I'm sorry, Hashem. Rambam says, he doesn't do that. The cow is a waste. The tshuva is not, there's no tshuva. It's like he did nothing. He has to come back next week and bring another cow. He has to come back as many times as he has to until he says, I'm sorry. It's as if he did nothing. Meaning that when someone starts doing tshuva, unless he actually starts by saying to Hashem, I'm sorry, he hasn't done anything yet. That's the value of I'm sorry to Hashem. To such an extent that the Zohar Kadosh, the Zohar Kadosh says that if Adam Arishon, Adam Arishon would have said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, simply, I know I sinned, I ate from the tree of knowledge because my wife gave it to me because the snake convinced her, and whatever, all the whole story, I'm sorry, I messed up Hashem. If he would have simply said, I'm sorry, everything would have been different. Hashem wouldn't have kicked him out of the garden. It would have still been him and Chava. Everything would have been fine. None of us. It would have been 5,000 years, 6,000 years of Adam Rishon and his wife. That's it. Everything would have been perfect. Hashem would have accepted his tshuva. Finished. Because he didn't say, I'm sorry, one time. That was the sin. That was the real sin. So here we see that the value of saying, I'm sorry, in the eyes of Hashem is extraordinary. They say that when they, in Yom Kippur, when they send one of the goats to Azazel to atone for all the sins of Am Yisrael, the Kohen Agadol sends it to him, and the uh, Kohen confesses on behalf of all of Am Yisrael. This whole process of throwing the, uh, the, the, the goat off the mountain, the whole thing, if there's no confession, none of Am Yisrael, the entire nation is not forgiven. The value of I'm sorry is as significant as can be. Now, unfortunately, sometimes I'm sorry is not enough. Sometimes saying I'm sorry is not enough. If a person violates a sin, in chapter 1, Alakha 4, I believe, yeah, 4, it says, if a person violates a sin that's punishable by karet, there are 36 sins that are karet. One of them is chilul shabbat. Another one is being with your wife when she's nida. Another one is eating on Yom Kippur. Another one is uh, eating chametz on Pesach, and so on and so forth. There's 36 different sins that are punishable by karet, which is execution by court, 
So if a person violates one of these sins, that is karet, din karet, which unfortunately, on, you know, anyone that hasn't done tshuva or has done tshuva or even anyone, pretty much all of us have done something that has karet. Once, twice, or a million times in our life. It says if someone has such a sin, tshuva, he does tshuva, does tshuva, he repents. He has Yom Kippur every year. And he does Tshuva, he does Chatatu Avinu Pashano. He does everything we just talked about. This has a tentative effect. Meaning, it's not the full effect. What's the effect that it gives it? This Tshuva, you did Chilul Shabbat your whole life. You finally did Tshuva at 30 years old. You've been an idol worshiper your whole life. Finally did Tshuva at 30 years old. Finally did Tshuva at 50 years old. Baruch Hashem. My uh, mom just told me that her dear friend has been watching the shiurim and so on. Did tshuva, she's 72 years old. 72 years old, she's already keeping Shabbat, I think, for the last year, Baruch Hashem. So it's possible for everybody. None of us have an excuse. So now, if we have this problem where we made these sins, it says the tshuva that we're doing is preventing the sentence of a premature death in God's hand from being executed. Meaning that if Hashem was going to shorten our life because of all the sins we made, our tshuva is putting that on stop. Meaning, once we start tshuva, Hashem gives us the opportunity to continue doing tshuva. We're buying ourselves more time. This tshuva is buying us more time. If Chas Shalom Rosh Shana came, and he was supposed to get uh, died that, that particular year. The person did tshuva. Hashem says, okay, let's give him another year. Let's give him another two years. Let's give him another five years. Let's see where he goes. Let's give him more time. So now you've put the clock on stop. The timer is on stop. Why? Because you did tshuva. But since it's a correct sin, since it's the worst possible sin, the only way to complete this tshuva and, and get complete, ato- complete atonement is through suffering. He will never achieve, this is the language of the Rambam, I'm not trying to depress you guys, I'm just trying to give you guys a reality check. And you'll understand why the Yavit said, Baruch Hashem. He will never, this is Ilchot Tshuva. Chapter 1, Allah 4. So anyone that tells you otherwise, doesn't matter whether Chabad or Breslev or some other religion or whatever it is, this is Torah. I didn't make this up. He will never achieve complete atonement until he endures suffering. For concerning these sins, the source... Is Psalm 89.33 where it states I will punish their transgressions with a rod. However, a person who desecrated God's name even though he repented. Yom Kippur arrived while he continued his repentance and he experienced suffering. He will not be granted complete atonement until he dies. So now you have two different things here. Someone that had Din Karet for violating Shabbat, for going with a uh, Nida and so on, 
He says the only way to do tshuva is regular tshuva, saying I'm sorry and all, and so on. But at that point, all the suffering that you have in your life, you can blame yourself for it. Meaning that that's what's going to get you into Gan Eden. That suffering that you have, the fact that you don't have money, the fact that you have uh, you know uh, headaches, the fact that you got a cold last week, the fact that your wife uh, you know yelled at you. The fact that the kid is uh, late to school every day, doesn't feel like going, whatever. All the suffering you have, you're sick, you have stomachache, you have diarrhea, you have a uh, boss yells at you, whatever, you have toothache. All the suffering you have, you package it all up, you say, Baruch Hashem. Why? That's what's going to get you into Allah Abba. Why? Because you made some sins before you did Tshuva. Now, that's for karet sins. If you made such a big sin, as big as Chilul Hashem, or meaning you made other people sin. You went to a non-kosher restaurant and you told your friends to come. Knowing that it's not kosher, but they didn't know it's not kosher. Or perhaps you walked around not modest. You walked around not modest, which is pretty much almost every single woman in this generation. And, you made, and other guys looked at you and they sinned because of you. Or you told people to stop listening to a certain rabbi because he's too extreme and he yells and he screams and he makes people do tshuva, but that's not good. And uh, he does it for free, but that's not good either. And, uh, you know, any, any, whatever excuses you have to not listen to him. You did something like that, you have a problem. Why? Because even suffering is not enough. Even suffering is not enough. He says the only way they complete their tshuva is after a life of suffering. Death is the only way they complete their tshuva. Assuming they've had enough suffering in this world and enough tshuva. If they didn't do tshuva, then nothing's going to help them. They have to go to a really, really hot place for a very long time, if not forever. So now you have yourself a reality check that's no longer from my lips. I'm just saying, I'm reading out loud, but you can read in the book yourself. Now, why is it, why is it that someone that made Chilul Hashem, someone that, in essence, desecrated the name of Hashem in public, where they were caught doing something bad, and in essence, they were blamed for doing it because they were a Jew or such a, such a thing. Why is that much worse than, let's say, a Chilul Shabbat, which in essence is one of the worst sins in Judaism? Why is Chilul Hashem even worse? Why do we have to die in order to repent for the sin. And he gives a mashal, he gives an example. The example is that if, well, actually Rashi gives the example. And it's also explained in Gemara Masechet Yevamot, page 22b. It says if, let's say for example, somebody makes the sin of adultery. They go with a married woman and... Uh, they say after that, they do it once, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Hashem, I made a sin, I made a sin, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, that's great, it's wonderful, great, thank you very much for saying I'm sorry. The problem is, a mamzer was born out of it. So regardless of how many sorries you say, there's an end product, there's something came out of it, something is still in the world as a result of it. Something exists because of that sin. You could say I'm sorry until you become a little blue smurf. It doesn't make a difference. This little mamzer is still walking around the world because of that one-time sin. It's not his fault that he can... You made the sin. The point is, he's in the world because of your sin. You can say, I'm sorry until next year. It doesn't make a difference. 
There's something happened because of it. It's the same thing if somebody says Lashonara about a rabbi. He can say Lashonara and then say to the rabbi, Rabbi, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for saying Lashonara. The problem is if the rabbi now lost 50, 100, 200, 1,000 listeners that are now not going to do tshuva because of you, you can say I'm sorry until you're blue in the face. You can donate a billion dollars. It doesn't make a difference. A thousand people are now guaranteed to not do tshuva because you said some shtuyot about him. Something happened. Something was left in the world. So it's the same concept with Chilul Hashem. Once you desecrate the name of Hashem, something changes in the world permanently. Something changes in the world permanently and you can't undo it. You can't undo it. Something changes. In the Gemara Masechet Shabbat, it says that when Shlomo Melech married the daughter of Paro, he married the daughter of Paro, and he saw that she wasn't exactly a righteous convert. She was a fake convert because she still had her idols. And she told him, yeah, this idol I worship on Monday, this idol I worship on Tuesday, this one on Wednesday. And he didn't rebuke her. It didn't rebuke her, and he almost lost his olam haba because of that. But the Gemara says that at that very moment that he saw her sin, and he didn't say anything, Malach Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, came down from Shemaim and smashed the world, smashed the earth, smashed the earth, and a bunch of sand came up from the sea, making a small island that little by little grew to becoming Italy. Grew to become the Roman Empire that would eventually destroy the Beit HaMikdash. So I know that people don't like mysticism, think this is ridiculous. That's their problem. That's how Italy was born. That's how Rome was born. It was born out of a sin of one of the greatest people that ever lived. When we do a Chilul Hashem Chas V'Shalom, we have a very serious problem. Now I'm going to finish it up with this. Better one hour of spiritual bliss in the world to come than an entire, an entire life of this world. People don't understand that if they work really hard, if they suffer in this world, but they suffer like the Yavid suffered. They praise Hashem because they realize this suffering is as a result of their actions. The suffering they have is good for them. I'm not chas v'shalom telling you guys to start praying for suffering. We're not at that level. Anyone that prays for suffering, Chazal calls them foolish. No, I'm serious. It's not, it's not, a, it's not, a, uh, it's not something you should pray for. Chazal specifically says... Don't pray for suffering because you've probably made enough sins that enough suffering is going to come to you anyway. Serious. So don't pray for suffering. Don't be a hero. We're not the sages of the Gemara. We made enough sins that suffer. Enough suffering is coming anyway. The point is how to take it. How to take it. If I know that every time I spend three hours in the bathroom screaming and yelling, that's going to remove a thousand years from Gainom, Baruch Hashem. If I know that every single time I have money problems, that's removing a few hundred years from Gainom, Baruch Hashem. 
If I know that every single time one of the people that I think is my friend ends up being my enemy, that's a kapat avunot for something I did in my life. Baruch Hashem. It's terrible. It breaks my heart. It's awful. I hate it. But Baruch Hashem. You understand? So, the same Tehillim that Rambam says this is the source of how suffering is a necessary part. It's a necessary evil, if you will. It comes from Psalm 89.50. And I looked at Psalm 89.50 throughout the day today, and it's truly beautiful. It explains this whole Mishnah, it explains this whole thing, I mean, it's with a lot of details. I'm not going to go over to the whole thing, because that would take hours, but just to give you an understanding. First and foremost, David Melech is writing this psalm, and uh, some of the commentary here is saying that actually he's writing it, uh, it's either about a person named Eitan, the uh, Azrahite, uh, uh, which is actually the second wisest man that ever lived. He's a prophet that was one of the second, second smartest after lived, that ever lived after Shlomo Melech. Or it's actually describing another name for Avraham Avinu. Because a lot of this stuff is describing Avraham Avinu. Anyway, first he's praising Hashem. Who is like you, Hashem? Who in the sky can be like you? Who is like you in general? He's praising Hashem, Baruch Hashem. And then he says in verse 15, Righteousness and justice are your throne's foundation. Kindness and truth precede your countenance. So, even though this seems very simple, nice adjectives that give Hashem beautiful description, the reality of it is that these are the reasons of why suffering is necessary. It says, in verse 31, if his sons should forsake my Torah, he's talking about uh, the Jews, if the sons forsake his Torah, and not walk in my judgments, if they should profane my statutes, and not observe my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod, and their iniquity with plagues. But I shall not utterly remove my kindness from him, and I will not be false to my faithfulness. So Hashem outright literally tells us, if we don't keep mitzvot, if we don't follow His Torah, if we don't do what He says, He's going to punish us with His rod, meaning He's going to hit us. And He's going to give us plagues, things that make us suffer. Why? Why? Why is this? Why is this? For the very same reason of what I just said. Because He's righteous, and He is just, and He's kind, and He's true. Meaning, righteous, He's not righteous because we just like to call Him nice names. He's righteous because He gives the evil punishment, and He gives the righteous reward. Justice means that He gives everyone what they deserve. Kindness means that He gives us enough time. When we start doing tshuva, He stops the clock. He gives us enough time to do tshuva. Even before we start doing tshuva, He still gives us more time to do tshuva. And truth, ve'emet, means that there's no way around it. There's no way around it. There's no way he says, listen, I like this guy. He's really, really nice. He read a few books. He uh, sold a few books. He even wrote a few books. But he doesn't keep Shabbat. But whatever, I'll let him pass. Because he's funny. There's no such thing. Why? Because his signature is emit. Meaning the same law applies to all. The same law applies to all. So lastly... I had this nice chidush, and then I realized it's not really my chidush, it's the al-shikh's chidush from 500 years ago. 
So Baruch Shekivanti. It's always nice to see that the chidush that I have is not really a chidush. It's actually something that was already thought about 500 years ago. At least it says we're in the right direction. So at the end of this, at the end of this a, uh, psalm, where he says that because we have to punish us because we made these sins and so on and so forth, it says the following. Mi gevel mavet yimalet nafsho miyad sheol sela. Who is a man that lives and will never see death and will, and will rescue his soul from the grasp of Gehenom, of Sheol? So, me Gevel, me Gevel means who's a hero? Gevel, like if you were just talking about a person or a male, it would just say me Ish. It says Gevel comes from the, from, from the same word of Gibol. Gibol means hero. Meaning, who's a hero that's going to live? What does it mean, live? Live means live by the Torah, because someone that's what's uh, what follows the Torah is considered living. Someone that's a sinner in the eyes of Hashem is considered dead even during their life. So, who is a hero to live and save themselves from Gehenom? Who is a hero to do tshuva? Who is a hero to do tshuva? Why? Because tshuva is not easy. It's not easy. You have to mamash pretty much first and foremost admit. That every single thing you've ever done is wrong. Your mindset was wrong. Your understanding was wrong. Your direction was wrong. Your friends are wrong. Your parents are wrong. Your everything is wrong. And now you have Hashem. And now that's right. So first and foremost, you have to take your ego, destroy it, recycle it, and throw it in some other neighbor's garbage, and then start all over from scratch. That's That's step number one. After that... You have to become a sponge for information. You have to consume as much Torah as possible to restart your life. doesn't matter what age. doesn't matter if you're the 72-year-old that just started doing tshuva a year ago, my mom's friend, or you're 25 years old, you just realize there has to be a purpose to life. Why? Because at the end of this, of this um, Tehilim, it says, your enemies have taunted O Hashem, that they have taunted the footsteps of your Mashiach. Blessed is Hashem forever. Amen and Amen. It says, the ones that haven't done tshuva, they're the reasons that are actually slowing down the Mashiach from coming. The ones that are not doing tshuva, the ones that have too much of an ego, they don't want to do tshuva, the ones that are still sinning and causing all of Am Yisrael to suffer, that's the reason why we're, we're, it's, it's delayed. Because Hashem is trying to give us time. But at some point or another, Hashem is going to show up. Mashiach is going to show up. Not going to have any more time. And that's when it says, what we say at the end of every lecture, Baruch Adonai Le'olam, Amen Amen. That's where it comes from. It comes from this, comes from this tailing. So you see, this theory that people have that everyone's going to be okay when a Mashiach shows up, I don't know where it comes from. It doesn't come from the Torah. This understanding that people would like to have and they like to imagine that no one has to do tshuva and everyone's okay whether you're Mechalel Shabbat or not, whether you're religious or not, whether you're this or not, has no source. Has no source. Because every lecture I bring you more books, every lecture I bring you more sources, and I'm honestly, I'm looking for the sources. I'm looking for the source. I'm looking for sources to not do anything. It doesn't exist. 
It doesn't exist. So the point of all of this is for us to understand. Hashem didn't bring us necessarily to the world to have a party. He doesn't want us to suffer. But if we party, we have to know that we have to do it in a kosher way. And if we suffer, we have to know that we deserve it and it's our own hands. It's our own hands. We made it. If you cook for Shabbat, you'll eat on Shabbat. If you get ready for Shabbat, you'll, you'll be ready for Shabbat. But the reality of it is that if we have any form of suffering, we deserve it. But better yet, it's still kindness from Hashem. And the reason why is because He's even using that suffering to help you. To help you clean whatever sins you have in this world. That's why the Yavits that had a six foot long worm come out of his body, children die, divorces, you know, stolen money, you know, bad friends, bad partners, pretty much every possible horrible thing that could possibly happen to a human being in a lifetime happened to this person. I mean, it's unbelievable that he even survived. And not only survived, he thrived. He was the giant speaker. He was a giant chacham. He was gdolado, huge tzaddik. I don't know. I mean, I, honestly, he had every single excuse in the book to be the biggest loser ever. He had a big excuse to be a loser, a criminal, or a sav at the least. He had an excuse to be a sav. What's our excuse? 